This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Happy Monday to you. Top of the Monday. I sounded magically delicious right there. This is the show where we give you the tools, the information you need to live healthier, happier lives. Ah, Today we will be talking about uh, the South Carolina primary. It's over. And and Nevada. Oh, and Nevada. Don't leave Nevada out. Or Nevada. Nevada. If you're from the Northeast. Uh, the, The Nevada caucuses with the Democrats. And I guess... This is now going to switch. Republicans have a caucus uh, tomorrow. tomorrow, and the Dems go to South Carolina to beat it out. Why wouldn't they just do it all know. on the same night? I don't understand. Is that too complicated to fly across the nation that way? And- There's probably more money to be had the other way. Okay. It seems like a lot of this is just about money, if you ask Bern Sanders. Yes, absolutely. What's interesting, though, is having a lot of money— doesn't seem to help. Didn't seem to help Jeb, exclamation point. No. 140-something million dollars. Lit on fire. <laughs> Gone. My wife was like, you know what you could have done with that? How many people could he have helped? Instead, well, he-, he bought commercials. <laughs> <laughs> but that helps a few people. You know what's great, though? Jeb, he, he, he did it respectfully. He just got out. Yeah. He, he probably he- had enough money to keep oh, going. Yeah. He had, he had plenty of money to keep going. Now he just... But you got to have a will. Where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. And then, then you see like a Ben Carson who finished yeah. behind Jeb. Ben's not going away. Oh, no. He's he's going to churn on through. And he's spending a, ton of, a lot of money too also. So Well, and Ben even won some delegates. I mean, not delegates. Ben won some votes. He did. It's amazing. Uh, let's give you the numbers on that. In South Carolina, uh, the Donster... Sir Donald Trump, uh, 32.5% of the vote. He won all 50 delegates. Rubio had 22.5% of the vote, beating out Cruz at 22.3% of the vote by just 0.2%. Jeb Bush came in a distant fourth with 7.8% of the vote. Kasich, uh, 7.6, and Carson, 7.2. Kasich called it a win. Well, yeah. He says it's a four-man race. Rubio (laughs) says it's a three-man race. Ted Cruz. <laughs> and no. Donald's like, it's a one-man race. Let's be real. I have no competition. But this is what we're going to be talking to Joe Cannon about, our Washington insider. Uh, we'll be talking about this as well as the 1912 presidential race. He says there's some some similarities. It's it's uncanny. <laughs> we'll find out. This is great. But now you got to wonder, so where will Bush's votes go? To Rubio, his nemesis? Maybe. You could see phone calls flying around behind the scenes trying to get uh, Bush's endorsement. Yes. And it looks like uh, Mitt Romney may be throwing his weight toward Romney. Rubio. Uh, Rubio. What did I say? Romney. Yeah, well, he yeah, supports Romney himself. Yeah, Romney Rubio. Oh, he would support himself <laughs> if he could get back in this thing. So maybe. We'll, we'll, maybe. All sides denying anything. Yeah. It's super secret. But the minute he, the minute he supports somebody, he's not getting in. Well, yeah, but I don't think he's getting in. I don't know. Like he's like, I've done it twice. Oh. I've lost a small fortune. Oh, I'm moving on. 
He's got to be. But again, how do you beat the Don? The reality is, is people are mad and they all like to Don's a I, bully. I read an interesting uh, – it was a political article about talking to some people kind of behind the scenes of the Jeb Bush campaign and how they came in. This is what we're going to do. I'm a, I'm a governor. I helped Florida. This is it. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden someone called me low energy. <laughs> and they, they sort of – at first they're like, ah, it's just Trump. We're fine. They Apparently the day he announced was um, a day after Jeb Bush announced. Yeah, right. And so the, the Bush campaign just sort of ignored that. They're like, oh, nah, sideshows, whatever. But then the second he was called low energy – It stuck. They couldn't – They at first the, the, the guys running the campaign ignored it because they're like, oh, that doesn't mean anything. And they kept pushing forward with their message. And then all of a sudden people started asking Jeb about how he's low energy – and then Jeb tripped up a couple times in a very unenergetic yeah, way. It came off a little low energy. And then they couldn't shake it. I know, but that's see, that's what he does. That's what this that's what the Donster does. And, and apparently the the higher the, the people leading Jeb Bush's campaign were just baffled. They could not understand how this stuck. <laughs> they said that, you know, Jeb was up at five thirty in the morning. People that worked for him when he was governor were getting emails at five thirty. Jeb was working, all this and he's anything but low energy. Yeah. But they couldn't shake the 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 the, the, the that just stuck. That name stuck. They are he is he's low, the low energy. energy. And then they tried the exclamation point and even that couldn't pull him out. Well then they forgot the trademark on L- it. Let's uh, let's find out what Jeb uh, has to say about dropping out. But the people of Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina have spoken, and I really respect their decision. So tonight, I am suspending my campaign. Yeah, yeah. No, yes, yes, I am. I congratulate my competitors that are remaining on the island (laughs) on their success for a race that has been hard fought. (laughs) Well, I guess reference to Survivor. Yes. That are remaining on the island. Uh, Interesting thing. um, Trump, you know, he's basically declared his victory. There's nothing easy about running for president, I can tell you. It's tough, it's nasty, it's mean, it's vicious, it's beautiful. (laughs) When you win, it's beautiful. Hmm. Yeah. He loves this. This is so fun for him. I think he's having a lot of fun. The thing that really annoys him is talking to the media. If if he could do it, but how could that annoy him? Just, he doesn't think the you can when you see him. He doesn't look like he's having fun when he's up there talking to people when he's doing his show when he's up there you know doing his rally. He, people he loves that. Oh jeez. Well, apparently, uh, according to Rubio, it's down to a three horse race. But after tonight, this has become a three person race, and we will win the nomination. Yay! But uh, <laughs> Ted Cruz is like, wait a minute. Despite the entirety of the political establishment coming together against us, South Carolina has given us another remarkable result. What? A second place tie way behind the front runner. Well, really, third place, if you're counting right. the numbers. If you look at the actual numbers, you're right. He called it a tie. Yeah. He no. kept referring, and it's like, well, actually, if you want to be specific. And this was South Carolina. This, these are the evangelicals. This is where he was supposed to dominate. Yeah. And the South. In and the South. So there seems to be some worry that Trump's just going to go in there and pick up all the votes he's been, he's been continuing with the same level of momentum. So let me get this straight. Trump won. Jeb was fourth. Yes. But he's out. Rubio says it's a three-horse race, right? Uh, and he's horse number two. Cruz thinks he's number two, even though he was number three. Yes. 
And Kasich, who was fifth, is claiming um, fourth, which maybe doesn't he doesn't seem to know the numbers either. And tonight, one more time, we have defied and overcome expectations in the state of South Carolina in about six or seven days. Okay, so what he's saying, I guess, is in six or seven days, they rallied. They rallied to a strong fifth. Yeah, fifth. But then, and then, you know, Bush got out of the race, which made him fourth. The math looked better. <laughs> he moved up a spot. So it's a four a four horse uh, race for Kasich. So if you're Donald Trump and you've got Rubio just like a little uh, dog just nipping on your heels, what what would you say? Uh, what would you say is the is the best attack on Rubio? I think the lawyers have to determine it. Uh, not, it was a retweet. Not so much with Marco. I'm not uh, really that familiar with Marco's circumstance. But then I know why that retweet it? Problem, but I think that because I'm not sure. I mean, let people make their own determination. You're really not so sure that Marco Rubio that is eligible to run for president? You're really not sure? I don't know. I, uh, somebody said he's not, and I retweeted it. <laughs> Here we go. So now so Rubio's not legal. He's questioning Rubio's birth right in the same way he questioned Cruz in canada is like rubio was born in the united states his parents yeah. are both citizens so is he is he is i mean i'm not qu- now I, I just retweeted it i'm not questioning there, he, it he said he didn't look at the link he just saw it and went oh that's interesting and retweeted it instead of actually i mean that that's something i would do because i don't matter but when you're running for president and you retweet things, it's it's kind yeah. of assumed that you've thought something through before you send it out to millions of people. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the link, it goes to kind of a well. Doesn't that just immediately imply? Because years uh, or a, uh, I think when Cruz was when he was pushing on Cruz's you know legality and eligibility, he said, "Oh, Rubio for sure." These were his words. Rubio for sure is legit, but. I don't know about Cruz. Yeah. So he's already said that. But now someone has worked up a video that purports to show some evidence that maybe Rubio is what that his mother had a had Rubio on a boat on the I, way here. I don't know from Cuba. I don't know. I I, I it's, it's just that is that this is racist, right? Isn't it? Isn't it right? I mean, to, you can't just he. Why hasn't he brought up Kasich? I don't know. Not a threat, probably. Probably as soon as he climbs, if 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 Kasich continues to climb, because he's showing an upward trend. Well, yeah, but <laughs> what's he going to say? I don't know where Kasich was born, but you know, got to question it. Yeah, maybe you never know. But it's the same thing. He's not saying it. He Someone didn't say else it. did. That, so I just retweeted. It, it wasn't right. me. Right. I was just retweeting it. I didn't know. I was just retweeting something I didn't know. I'm trying to work that into my my daily conversations more. Did you hear that Ben's I, engaged? Really? I don't know. Just but I'm just retweeting it. I want to do it more of a as an insult with people. Well, like to insult them but go, it wasn't me. Yeah. I heard that. Or yeah. I saw it on Twitter. I mean, I'm not so. saying I'm not I'm not saying you're not legitimate. You're not legal. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying people have said that. It's interesting. People have said that Donald's hair is not real. But I'm not saying that. And I saw a woman walk up on stage and pull on his hair. <laughs> I think it's real. I think she was invited up on it's stage. Either that or it's stapled really well. By the way, if if somebody ever see, but we're not saying this. No, we're just saying don't. I mean, people have said that. Oh man, 
Fun, huh? I don't know. I mean, where does he get the idea that if you push on the birth eligibility of a candidate that it might create a storm? I think he knows the people who were coming to his rallies. Maybe people have, you know, maybe he knows the guy behind the Obama birther thing. Could be. He might have a personal uh, knowledge of that individual. I'm not saying. Hey, uh, let's get to the headlines, Terry. Anything going on around the rest of the world we need to pay attention to? Yes, thanks, Matt. Eight people shot and six were killed on Saturday night in Kalamazoo, Michigan. The suspect has been identified as Jason Brian Dalton, who shot three people in three separate incidents. The, mo- the motive is unclear at this time. The first shooting took place around 6 p.m. Saturday night, where a woman with her three kids was shot four times. Two other shootings, which appear to be related, happened later in the night as Dalton allegedly drove around looking for targets. It was later reported that Dalton is a registered Uber driver. Dalton oh, allegedly wow. drove other customers that night in between the shootings. And at one point, the, uh, the guy, there is an, there's an yeah. interview out there with the guy, and he says he was in the back seat, and he goes, you're not that shooter they're talking about, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then they get out uncomfortably and move on. Uh, so that guy's kind of feeling... He's lucky to be alive. Fortunate to be alive. Uh, it says, uh, Uber says they're cooperating with law enforcement and they're continuing to investigate what the motive and all this whole thing was about in Kalamazoo. Mm. Some of those who were wounded in the San Bernardino attack are planning to file a legal brief to force Apple to unlock the encrypted iPhone of one of the shooters, a lawyer for the victim said on Sunday. Stephen Larson told Reuters the information on Syed Farouk's phone extends beyond the Justice Department's criminal investigation. They were targets by terrorists, and they need to know why and how this could happen, Larson said. Larson said he was contacted a week ago by the Justice Department and prosecutors about representing the victims. He plans to file an amicus brief in court by early March. Apple has refused to help the FBI gain access to Farouk's phone, arguing that it would set a dangerous precedent. Early this morning, Apple Chief Executive Tim Cook and uh, oh, uh, had a response to that. You can see that online uh, as Tim Cook goes into more detail. He's talking to Apple employees about why they're taking this type of stand. The Apple Chief Tim Cook and FBI Director James Comey have been invited to appear before the House Energy and Commerce Committee's Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigation to discuss the encrypted issues that have put them at odds. Their request is not legally binding, so we'll see if it actually happens. They've been invited. It is not like a, uh, a subpoena or something mm. like that. So we'll see what happens as this continues to con- uh, roll out this debate over encryption and who gets to unlock what phone. Crazy. Uh, since former Florida Governor Jeb Bush dropped out of the presidential race Saturday night, his robust donor base is already working its way to fellow Floridian Marco Rubio. About 20 Bush donors have reportedly already contacted Florida lobbyist Brian Ballard, a Rubio supporter who switched from Bush in 2015. There is no doubt that the Rubio campaign and Super PAC could use a bump, Ballard told USA Today, and it's clear that that is going to happen. Mm. So some of the money supporting Bush will be now moving over to Rubio. Well, and do you think Bush will come out and support I mean, uh, Rubio, because that was that was know. a very heated contest. That was heated as he tried to attack him constantly. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry said Sunday that he has reached a provisional agreement with his Russian counterpart on terms of ceasefire in Syria, hmm. the Associated Press reports. The next step, Kerry said, is reaching out to all parties involved in the five-year civil war, including the Syrian government, opposition leaders, and then Iran. Then President Obama and Russia's uh, Vladimir Putin would sit down and talk. Wow. So that would make everybody safer. So we're not shooting on each other. Is that the idea? I, I guess. Because I don't think, uh, you know, terrorist group or Syria necessarily is going to stop on the ground. No. But as we're all flying around trying to allegedly help, 
Well, and I heard somebody made a great point. It seems like Russia should be just as worried that we would be shooting them down. Yes, since we're both supporting opposite sides in this. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll get to that. Interesting stuff, folks. We're going to take a break. When we come back, our Washington insider, Joe Cannon, will be joining us. We're going to be talking about the South Carolina primary and also the Supreme Court uh, or the loss of Justice uh, Antonin Scalia and see what that's going to do to the political you know, framework for the next year. Wow. Interesting stuff, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, hopefully see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We've had a lot of political news uh, with the South Carolina primary, the Nevada caucus, and uh, also the Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia's passing. So we thought, of course, we'd bring in our expert, our our, uh, our Washington insider, Joe Cannon. Joe has, uh, you know, basically served at every level or uh, run for certain. Um, Candidate or certain offices. He was a Senate candidate in 92. He also served as an assistant administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency um, under the um, Reagan administration. Um, but he also has been an editor of, a, of, the, of an Intermountain uh, newspaper, Deseret News, which is a, a large, um, well-thought-of newspaper out here in the Intermountain region. But uh, Joe's our Washington insider, and we welcome him here today. Joe, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. In fact, uh, one of our fans from Ohio, Jim Deegan, uh, talked to me and said he loves your show, your segment of the show. Oh, thank you. That's very nice. Thanks. He says he can't he can't get enough of it. So, Joe, we got to get we got to get your take on all of this. And I I don't know where to begin because I think I know where your heart is. Would probably be more talking about the loss of Antonin Scalia. Um, just give me your view on on his loss and help us understand, those of us that aren't attorneys, those of us that don't, you know, follow the Supreme Court as as much as we should, what what did we lose with the loss of Antonin Scalia? Well, uh, wow. He was a titan, a titan of the law. Even before he got on the Supreme Court, he was on the D.C. Circuit, which is sort of the First among equals of the uh, of the federal circuits, and just a great man. I, I I you know I didn't know him well. I've met him a number of times. I I served on a committee with him, something called the Administrative Conference of the United States, when he was on the the circuit court. Uh, and you know he's just he's funny uh, and just incredibly smart. And from my perspective, uh, right. Uh, mm. uh, the whole the whole idea of uh, originalism, what did the framers mean, and the fact that the Constitution means what it says. It's, it's not an elastic living document that uh, was put in place and it created the greatest nation in the history of the world. And, and uh, so somebody has to have a really, really, really good reason for wanting it to be different. Mm. He didn't. He didn't think judges should make law. They should interpret and apply the law. Uh, no, it's just a, a grand and, and a, a, a fabulous writer. Actually, there's, I've got a great book. I didn't read the whole thing, honestly, but I read big chunks of it. Uh, it's a book just of his dissents. 
<laughs> and and a lot of his descents, first were brilliantly written, but also uh, in some cases became the law later on. It became uh, you know where the where the court eventually went. But he, he he's the more conservative thought leader, right, uh, on the court. He so he would lead the 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 conservative other justices. Um, you know, we always hear about the four four tie, uh, but he he was he was a he was a thought leader in on the court. Yeah, and and yeah, he was he was a clear thought leader, and clearly in what people think of as the uh, conservative faction on mm. the court. Wow, and yeah, how just, uh, how do you replace? I mean, I guess this this is what it's coming down to, though. Now we have, I guess, very much a four four kind of court as far as supposed uh, political views or whatever. But these justices, they're not just making decisions based on their political views, are they? No, but they do. When you in these days, now this has only been true in the last you know three decades, maybe, but. Uh, uh, they come from uh, perspective. They come from a political, judicial, legal perspective, and uh, and the justices on the left have a, have a strong view that uh, the courts ought to, you know, interpret the Constitution in a way that's fresh and and current uh, and applies to today. A very common thing that these justices would say would be, "Oh, look." Um, the Constitution, the framers could never have imagined X. You know, they could never have imagined uh, the Internet. They could have never imagined interstate highways. They could never have imagined railroads. Uh, so there are all kinds of things. Since they couldn't imagine it, we have to imagine for them what they might have done. And uh, the conservatives say, no, maybe they didn't imagine every specific thing, but they imagined um, a structure and a way to deal with the problems which meant less government. So a lot of this comes down to the role of government. Hmm. And uh, at least since, you know, 1916, 19, the early part of last century, uh, you've had a more of a progressive movement that says, you know, government is the solution to problems. And so people genuinely believe that. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't agree with that, but it's a genuinely deeply held belief on the part of uh, the left. Do, do you sense, Joe, that um, – so you heard about Mitch McConnell coming out and saying, okay, we, we, aren't, we aren't going to um, – we're not going to, to do anything with any appointment to the Supreme Court until the new president. Right. What's your feeling about that? Because um, it seems like – I don't know. It seems like politically he could have done the same thing without saying anything. Oh, I, I think it was a mistake. And, you know, I'm, I'm not one who is a big critic of, uh, of McConnell. He's a really generally a really smart guy and really smart at, at how he manages uh, the Senate. And, yeah, and I think that was a big mistake. He didn't need to say it at all. Uh, he could have said, uh, great, let's see who the president sends up. Now, I, I think he's right in the end, and I think – you know, if you imagine the inverse situation, you imagine George Bush is president uh-huh. and the Democrats control Congress and Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies in exactly the same time in Bush's administration. There is zero chance that the, uh, that the Democrat, a Democrat Senate would, would uh, uh, support a, uh, a nominee from uh, uh, 
President Bush. So, you know, it, it's defending on both sides. Right. But I, it's, it's a, it was a mistake to say it that way because, you know, look, you have a process. Let the president nominate somebody, have hearings, and then figure it out. He, he, he still has all the same power, you know. And, right. And, uh, and I think it's just my own view. The substance of this is, and I, I have the same view if uh, Bush were president in the same exact circumstance, the Democrats wanted to uh, stop a, a Bush nominee. I'd say, look, we have an election coming up. This election is about a lot of things. In this case, it's particularly about the United States Supreme Court. So let's let the voters have hmm. a say in this. And I think that's the right thing. I think it was the wrong tactic to, to say, but before Justice Scalia's, I mean, apart from everything else, Justice Scalia's body was barely cold mm-hmm. when uh, right. when he when he just takes to the ramparts and says, "Heck no, we're not we're not having a uh, a uh, a Democrat nominee." I mean, there's no reason to do that. You know, it's a. Uh, I, I guess I guess that's that was what was just weird, right? Is his, yeah, his yeah. immediate? He came right out of the shoot and and said it. Um, cause like, I mean, like when Robert Bork went through, there was a, there was kind of an intentional process to delay the game. Right. And to, to, and, and to just slow down the process he, when he didn't go through. Right. Well, there's no question. There's a lot of Bork revenge on the minds of a lot of Republican senators right now. And, uh, but still, still there's a, there's a sense of decorum that you could keep. First of all, just respecting the fact that Justice Scalia died. Right. What he did was instantly politicize yep. something when, you know, it was just, I don't know, it didn't have a really good flavor or feel to it. Is there any way, do you sense, that uh, the president could nominate somebody that would be a no-brainer for the Senate? No. He, he, he no. There's zero chance because isn't aren't some of these like john uh john roberts chief justice roberts was nominated by uh president bush right and he he went through and is still kind of a swing vote in that he can go either way well the real swing vote is justice kennedy who was also appointed by republicans so Hmm. uh there's no certainty in who you appoint but because of that there is no question that President Obama would want someone of, of his persuasion on there. And, there, you know, this is very binary at this point. You, you know, in, in, when I was growing up, uh, yeah, justices were not nearly as sharply politically divided, I, ideologically divided, but now they are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it's very binary. You know, you're either for or against a certain interpretation. And, now, by the way, you know, the vast number of cases that come before the Supreme Court are not ideological at all. We hear about the big cases, but just in an average year, the court is going to decide 150 cases. Maybe three or four, five of them turn out to be these politically charged uh, ideological cases. Hmm. And, on, and on most of the, on a lot of the rest of there, there have been unanimous decisions on uh, right. a number of cases. So, But there are certain issues that are so important to the base of each party that there's no compromise. There's well, no compromise. and aren't there other uh, there are uh, there are cases right now that will even be dis- making decisions about the um, about Obama's uh, Obama's uh, oh, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. White the, House. The, uh, the 
clean power plant uh, program that the Supreme Court stayed in a 5-4 decision. Now it's 4-4. Hmm. Okay, a 4-4 decision upholds whatever the the, the circuit court sends to it. Okay. So so uh, yeah, the, the Republicans are saying right now we are prepared to lose a lot of cases that are really important. But because they're saying we would lose anyway, there's no way that that uh, President Obama would would uh, nominate somebody to the Supreme Court who would not uphold his clean power plant, clean power plant uh, program. Just for example, that's just an example, and there are there are others. So uh, a four-four decision basically affirms whatever the circuit court does. Mm. So there are going to be a lot of cases that are going to get affirmed that might not have otherwise been affirmed. If Justice Scalia had been there. Oh wow, interesting, um, interesting take. Let's uh, let's take a break, Joe. Again, we're speaking with our Washington insider, Joe Cannon. And Joe, if uh, if you remember, is the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation. His organization, if you go to the website fuelfreedom.org, is fighting to uh, have you know better you know markets for fuel in the United States, uh, which would hopefully lower your fuel costs. Um, a great benefit to all of us, the work he's doing there at fuelfreedom.org. We'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion with Joe Cannon. Uh, this time we'll get into the presidential race, what's going on there, what he thinks about uh, George uh, or uh, Jeb Bush, you know, getting out of the race. Interesting stuff. And is it a three-horse race now on the GOP side? Stick with us, folks. We're talking politics right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Joe Cannon, our Washington insider. And uh, today we are talking uh, all things political. We just finished a discussion about the Supreme Court and uh, what's going to happen there. But, Joe, um, welcome back to the show, my friend. Hey, thanks, Matt. Thanks. Great to have you. Where are you today, by the way? Uh, well, I'm on my way to the airport right now. Oh, you, you're just always yeah. traveling. Headed, headed back to Washington. Oh, fun! Yeah, yeah. T- t- tell them hi from the re- from the rest of uh, us. I will uh, from the real world in, in the heart of darkness. Right. That's right. Hey, what do you think about what happened in uh, South Carolina? Trump just handled it pretty easily. It looks like. Well, Trump won. There's no question about it. Can't take anything away from that. But just remember, four years ago, Newt Gingrich won. And True. he won by and he won by forty percent. He won by a higher percent than uh, than uh, Trump did. Hmm. So uh, and and Romney, I think, came in second, and uh, since Warren like got seventeen percent. So you know, uh, it's early. It's it's well, it's early. I mean, it, it is. I don't want to. It, it's different. People were talking about the dynamics. Sometimes they think it's the same, but sometimes they act like it's different. Trump has an embedded about a third of the vote. Wherever he goes, he's got about a third of the vote. No matter what he says, no matter how much he contradicts himself, no matter how much he sounds like a leftist on one day, a right-wing guy on another day, I mean, he, he, he'll be against Bush, Bush's a traitor, uh, and he still, he still has this hardcore support. I think 
a way to look at what happened in South Carolina is a third of the people voted for Trump and two-thirds of the people voted for not Trump. Hmm. And he's not the second choice of very many of those not Trump people. And so as the race thins out, uh, you know, you, you, uh, you in your run-up to the uh, uh, the break, you said, is, is it really a three-person race like Rubio says? No, it's a two-person race, Trump and not Trump. And the question is, can somebody get across the finish line, uh, i.e. by the convention, with at least 50% plus one of the delegates? And that turns out to be a trickier thing. Hmm. Uh, you know, Mike, so a lot of your listeners are in Utah, Governor Mike Levitt, uh, was also the head of EPA and the head of the uh, Department of Health and Human Services. Very smart guy. And he was the delegate hunter for Mitt Romney in the Romney campaign in 2012. And so he, he's written a very interesting analysis that shows that if you assume Trump wins, 40, or wins all of the winner-take-all states, so he wins all the winner-take-all states, he still needs to win 45% of the vote in all of the other races oh, wow. in, order, in order to show up at the convention with uh, 1,260, I can't remember the exact number, uh, of delegates that you need to win. And it's going to be very, very hard for him to do that. So when you get to the convention, uh, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough on, on Trump to get there with 50-plus percent of votes. Then when you get to the convention, and we've talked about this a little bit before, people talk about a brokered convention. There's no, no such thing. And, and, you know, there's a common smoke-filled room. Everybody gets together. That that won't happen. But what will happen is vote after vote after vote. And I think in the Republican convention, after the first ballot, all the delegates are free to vote whoever they want for whoever they want. So then you have a free-for-all, including, including by the way, Trump delegates. Hmm. So some of the Trump delegates could switch, some of the Cruz delegates could switch. But anyway, you have a mix, and you keep voting until somebody gets fifty percent. Man, so, uh, I mean, in fact, making the same point as you, uh, Rubio is saying that seventy percent of Republicans nationally have said they're not voting for Donald. But answer this because Donald's also saying, well, okay, for example, now that you have uh, Jeb out of the equation, Jeb's 7% that was in South Carolina is going to go somewhere. Not, I mean, is that, is, let's just say, I'm assuming that would go to either Kasich or Rubio. That would be my guess, too, by the way. Uh, uh, so if you, if you took all three of them out, which eventually it'll get there, I mean, I, I think... Uh, Maybe Kasich will stand until Ohio to give him a chance to at least be the, to have favor in such status. But eventually, the three of them are going to drop out, and the three of them are not going to be the candidates. Hmm. The, the two of them now, uh, Kasich and, and uh, Dr. Carson. So when when that happens, uh, you're going to have the, uh, Trump's still going to have 30-plus percent of the delegates, and not Trump is going to have two-thirds of the delegates and they're going to eventually they're going to eventually get there get get to a uh, get to a result don't they need to get there quickly like it seems like uh if if rubio if they can't start consolidating this thing sooner then really it does keep giving this 
at least this uh, appearance that Trump is the inevitable favorite. And so whether the delegates are there, I mean, it seems like it might just start creating more of a groundswell that he's inevitable. Uh, yeah, but I I don't see Cruz or Rubio dropping out. They're going to fight it out. Now, what may happen is a lot of those uh, voters may decide, hey, we have to pick a horse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can see it breaking either for Cruz uh, or for Rubio. But at the end of the day, I don't see uh, Carson delegates. I don't see, for sure, I don't see Kasich delegates. Uh, and I don't see any of those Bush delegates going for Trump. I mean, maybe 1% might. But by and large, they're going to choose between Rubio and Cruz. Mm. Wow. So now, you, now you can get to a convention, and maybe Cruz makes a deal with the devil. Maybe he and he the triumph of the deal, and Trump talks Cruz into joining up with him. Yeah. Um, so, there, I mean, there are all kinds of permutations on this thing. But you look at the, all of the overall numbers. I mean, Trump talks about winning, winning, winning. He's never actually won in the sense of 50-plus percent. He's getting in the 30s, and that's a win. I'm not, I'm not taking it away that that's a win, but it's not 50. It's not, yeah. That's what, you need, that's what you need to get the nomination. But when you look beyond the numbers, and Republicans will, are going to start looking at this, he's the least electable nationally of all of the candidates. Uh, Sanders beats him, Clinton beats him, whereas uh, Cruz barely beats Clinton and Rubio beats Clinton by, you know, comfortable margin. Hmm. So um, when you get to the convention, when you get to Cleveland, people are going to start asking themselves, hey, we want to win. We want to win. And um, I think I think you're going to find one of the some combination, maybe it maybe have a, which is crazy in a lot of ways. You have a, a Cruz Rubio ticket or a Rubio Cruz ticket. Oh wow! So, um, <laughs> which is that, amazing. Well, that might be how the deal gets done. No, absolutely. And two, how wild that the GOP then presents a ticket with two Hispanic Americans. Right. Well, yeah, one I mean, Hispanic you, and one Canadian American. Right. We're talking to Donald. Oh, <laughs> he is so obsessed with you, and he's been obsessed with this since. since uh, President Obama. All right, this is the booth birthday thing there too. But but <laughs> you could also it could also be that the convention says, you know what, the most winning ticket is going to be Rubio Kasich. Yeah. Oh, and, that would be uh, incredible. And, and that that could be a nice, you know, a lot of uh, delegates could hold their nose and vote for that or vote for it enthusiastically. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, you'd have Florida and Ohio, two major states. You got to win. And two, and two very popular figures in each of those states. Hmm. So, what uh, do you think of what's going on with Clinton? She she eked out a win in Nevada by about five percentage points, but it probably shouldn't have been that close. shouldn't have been that close, and it took the astronomical effort of the political hammer, Harry Reid, and the unions to, to get to make that happen. Uh, but the more interesting thing about Nevada— and actually all three, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, on the Democrat side, is in each case, fewer people and sometimes significantly fewer people came out oh boy, yeah. than in 2008. So you have, uh, I heard Paul Pagala talk just last week, I was at a lunch and he was speaking, so he's a Clintonista, he's all in. But he said the biggest thing he fears is the enthusiasm gap. you got 75 77% of Republicans saying they are going to vote no matter what, 
and that number on the D side is more in the 40s. Oh, boy. Said, unless, unless that changes, we are in real trouble. Yeah, you won't have the okay. Obama turnout, will you? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I, it's much more concerning for them, if you're a Democrat, to say, no, the numbers just aren't showing up with anywhere near the enthusiasm. And most of that enthusiasm that is there is for a guy who can, you know, probably could never get elected. <laughs> That's right. Well, and did you see the picture of Bernie Sanders holding that baby dressed like Bernie Sanders? <laughs> it's a picture you must see. That had white hair all messed up, glasses. <laughs> it's cute. Hey, talk to me about, uh, you've been doing some research about the 1912 presidential race. <laughs> well, just a, you know, a couple of quick notes on, on that. Uh, you have four candidates. Uh, and you could, you probably wouldn't have four candidates this time, but you could have three candidates. So that was the election. William Howard Taft was president, um, and Teddy Roosevelt decided he had been out of the presidency too long, and he should be the president. And it was honestly, it's a, uh, anyone wants to read about this, it's a great book called The Bully Pulpit by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Mm. But, um, and it's not all about this election. It's actually just all about the relationship between Taft and Roosevelt and the progressive press over time. But you have um, you have uh, Teddy Roosevelt saying, "This became his like tagline: We stand at Armageddon and we battle for the Lord." Oh my heavens! That's Teddy Roosevelt. Okay, <laughs> then you've got Eugene Debs, who's a socialist, saying essentially a lot of the same things that Bernie Sanders is saying. Uh, you know, the uh, capitalism has failed, democracy has failed. You know, we have to have more government. <laughs> you have uh, William Howard Taft saying, no, we're conservatives. We believe in less government. Uh, we believe in the power of the people. Actually, let me try to get his uh, quote. We stand at Armageddon. Um, I mean, and that sounds like Ted Cruz. Lord. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It sounds like Ted Cruz. Then you've got um, uh, Taft saying, our party stands for the right of property, the right of liberty, for institutions that have stood the test of time, for uh, an economic system that rewards energy, courage, enterprise, attention to duty, hard work, thrift, and providence, rather than laziness, lack of attention, lack of industry, and the yielding to the to appetite and passion. <laughs> <laughs> Holy <laughs> cow. Any Republican today. That's right. Uh, but interesting, Woodrow Wilson, who was very progressive and who ended up winning. Yeah, again, yeah, yeah, what happened is Roosevelt and Taft took about, you know, almost 60% of the vote. Uh, Wilson got elected by 40.1% or something. But uh, he campaigned on more government, but that, that government should be at the state level, not at the federal level. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Very much of a, he said, we want a small federal government and strong state government. This was in 1912, uh, so about 100 years ago or more, yeah. they're still fighting about the same thing. The same, literally, I could take statements by any of the candidates today, and you could find the exact analog in 1912. Well, and it wasn't Armageddon then, so that's good. And it, yeah. <laughs> and it, so it must be Armageddon now. Yeah. Oh, well, interesting. Every election, every election is the most important election in the history of America. That's what everybody says. Uh, might be true this time. I mean, actually, this time is we are at a very interesting knife edge in a lot of different ways, including the Supreme Court. But I just thought it was interesting looking at the uh, uh, the Taft, Roosevelt, Wilson, Eugene Debs race, and how many of those themes 
uh, are almost verbatim from today. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it, it really is interesting, and it's I guess it. Uh, this is why we probably ought not be swayed just by emotion or even the argument. We probably need to look at look at more of the data. Who's saying it? What they were saying yesterday? What they're going to say right. tomorrow? Uh, Joe, as we wrap it up, anything else we need to be paying attention to? Well, probably lots of things. I mean, this is a really interesting election. It's very, very interesting, and um, it'll be it'll be really. It just depends on if, if Trump can break out into the 40s, he's likely to be the next nominee. If he doesn't do that, you're going to have a very interesting convention. Hmm. Well, that's a good – I mean that really is a good sign, a good indicator. Be looking for Trump's numbers in an election, in a primary, to, to exceed 40 percent. Right. Then he probably has a pretty good chance. If not – It'll be really interesting to watch that convention. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Joe, we appreciate you. Great insight, and uh, have a safe flight, and tell everybody back in D.C. hi, because you're, you. you're our Washington insider. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Week. Take care. Again, Joe Cannon, if you go to his website, fuelfreedom.org, you can learn more about what his organization is doing to try to decrease your fuel costs here in the United States. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a quick break and be back in just a minute. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, politically, it's just it's a crazy time. Uh, You may have remembered um, in the Democratic uh, town hall they had last week or recently, uh, Henry Kissinger's name was brought up and Bernie Sanders went off on Hillary Clinton because of Henry, you know, the history of some of the things Henry Kissinger had done. Um, in while well, you know supporting his president, uh, here's a quote from Henry Kissinger about the past. Listen to this: It is not often that nations learn from the past; even rarer that they draw the correct conclusions from it. So, as Joe's sitting there talking to us about the 1912 presidential race, they're all saying the exact same thing. We have very you know a lot of people invoking God's name about Armageddon. That was Teddy Roosevelt. Others talking about the right of property and of businesses to thrive. Um, some were socialists talking about how, you know, the, how democracy had failed. And 100 years later, we're at it again. We're at it again. Uh, the, in the end, though, folks, it comes down to you. You can vote for the person you want to vote for, but think it through, right? Think it through. Uh, don't just make a reactive decision. These people are going to be leading you and your country, they're going to making, be making the biggest political decisions um, for all of us for the next uh, four years. So don't take your, don't take your responsibility lightly. Um, again, if you're frustrated by past presidencies, whether Bush or Obama, again, you were part of that process as well on either side. So um, let's, let's own our democracy a little bit more. We're going to take a break. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Wrapping it up, we'll be back next hour to give you more ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we uh, bring you the solutions you need, the information you need to grow healthier, happier lives. How do we know that they need this? We've been doing research. Is that what it is? Nine out of ten of our dentists that we've surveyed Mm. suggest that our show brings more solutions per pound than any other show on radio. Pound for pound. Pound for pound, the Matt Townsend Show brings you more answers to the questions you have than any other show on Earth. Earth, wow. Yeah. Interesting. That's what our dentists say. Okay. Dentists, they they really know their stuff. They are smart people. At least nine out of ten. By the way, the nicest smiles you've ever seen with our focus group. Then what were you going to say chomping at the bit? Oh, I was just going to say it, it was it was nice because we also found from the same study that our tasers are the most effective. Yes. Um, they uh, nerve for nerve our tasers create more pain per per watt. Wow. And, and give the most wanted response from your Yes. from who you're talking to. Mhm. Okay. Which we feel really good about. And this is some scientific studies that have happened too. Because for those that don't know, we are starting a a little side thing. We call it a side thing. Tasers are us. Tase it. Some radio shows have bumper stickers Mm -hmm. and T-shirts. You want tasers. We're trying to start a business on the side because we're sick of people bad-mouthing tasers. Like tasers electrocute. No, tasers don't electrocute. People electrocute others with tasers. It's people. It's not tasers. Okay. People bad, tasers good. Just saying. A lot of people thought this won't work. Yeah. But it's going to be the biggest nonprofit of the of the decade. We almost sold one yesterday. Nonprofit in the la- in, in the lack of profit? Is that no, what you mean? No, 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 no. It's the lack of actually making any money. Well, we're about to. We we almost sold one. Not I was going to say yesterday, but Saturday, we were at a taser show. Hmm. They have those. Well, a lot of people showed up thinking it was a laser show. It was like a taser con. Yeah. Okay. Is it taser con? Ta- tase. Yeah. Taserama. We call it. And uh, there's a couple people that showed up, and we almost sold one. Yeah, we we rented out a room at BYU, yeah. set up a table. Bring our 10,000 tasers. Hmm. And free tases, we called it. Free tase. And um, two two people showed up. One one was working here. I think he was just seeing if we were done. Maybe there's like some cookies or something. Yeah. He needed the room. And then the other one was like, wow. That's a lot of tasers. But they seemed intrigued by our idea. Hmm. They kept saying, wow. Was anyone there to view... The lack of interest. What do you mean? Sometimes when people put on a big event and no one shows up, there's some people that like mm-hmm. to show up and just see the the carnage, either the emotional carnage or the actual destruction. Yeah, no, of no. People. no, okay. Nope. No one showed up. But the one person that we almost sold it to. Almost sold it. They were like, yeah. 
Okay. We kept saying, try it. Just try it. <laughs> and they, we kind of sold it on the way out as we were walking out. And, okay. And well, they, you know, little steps, small ben, steps. Ben kept saying, what's it going to take to get you in this taser today? <laughs> Which I thought was fascinating. It's we a have great some great financing pitch. plans. Yeah. We, we ended up tasing him on the way out. Yeah. But that was a little bit that, – yeah. pro- that was probably uncalled for. I think that's when we lost the cell because we had him. Right, he's like, I'll just take one to get out of here. And then I was trying to find my square for my phone so I could charge him. And then Ben's like, let me show you how great – and then he tased him. Mm. And then the, – then You didn't ask beforehand, get permission, maybe sign some waivers? Well, my finger kind of slipped. Okay. Into so, into his rib cage? We found that a lot of people would rather just be surprised by it. Really? Yeah. Somehow doubt that. Well, now I do too because we lost the cell. <laughs> Not even close. Hey, uh, I got some great news. Holy cow! I've got great news. So you know how a lot of people exercise? Yes. And a lot of people like go running to exercise. I have no idea why they do this. It's the dumbest thing. Yeah. Well, apparently they're finding out that running can be something you're allergic to. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I understand. Woo! So excited. Uh, it may sound like the perfect answer to your exercise excuse streams, offering legitimate reason to park your gym wear in the cupboard. But apparently an allergy to running is a real thing. Hmm. And it's not pleasant. And I'll tell you, as somebody that has it, it's horrible. I don't think they're talking about being out of breath. Yeah. Or tired. Well, because my, my chest tightens every time I run. My chest tightens. That's burns. normal. That's, that's it's supposed to. I have, like, I have salty fluid running through all my pores and running out of all my pores. Again, a desired effect of the running. That's what you want. My heart races. Kind of the point. And my feet kill. But a team of scientists have identified a genetic mutation that is responsible for a rare form of hives. I don't usually get the hives. Hmm. But the hives, which are induced by vibration. Hmm. I don't know what kind of running you're doing. Yeah. The condition known as vibratory urticaria can be triggered by running, clapping your hands, towel drying, and even a bumpy bus journey. The vibration causes a temporary skin rash by promoting the release of inflammatory chemicals from your immune system called mast cells. So you have this? Well, I think mine's different. Oh. I just get a ra- – whenever I run, I get a racing heart. Mm-hmm. I get the sweats. Okay. And shortness of breath. So you're working out. And achy muscles. Yeah. That happens from yeah. time to time. The, the foot problem, maybe some different shoes. Yeah, I've got those now. Okay, there you go. In addition uh, to the real allergy where you get the vibratory urticaria, urticaria hmm. you also get itchy red welts at the, side of the, at the site of vibration on the skin. You can also experience flushing. I get that when I run. Headaches, get that. Fatigue. Every time I'm done running, always have fatigue. Interesting. You, may, you have many of these symptoms. I know. That's why I'm thinking I've got it. Blurry vision. Except the main one, the hives. Except the hives. And I don't feel like my skin vibrates. Hmm. Often you can also get a metallic taste in your mouth. You know? I don't get that. Unless I put my key in my mouth. Yeah. To save it. Just so Which I don't would be an it. odd place. I just to... don't want to lose it. Well, when you're running, you don't necessarily have pockets all the time. No. Yeah. Right. I'm at the know. gym. I don't know what you do with the keys. Just stick it in your between your cheek and gum. You could. Then I get that metally taste. <laughs> 
Anyway, symptoms usually disappear within an hour. That's about how mine work. But those affected may experience several episodes per day. Hmm. So if you, you may have an allergy to running, just know that. Be aware. It's, be aware. It's something that's there. It can be diagnosed. Mm-hmm. I think your symptoms are more you don't run and you're trying to run. Hmm? And you're reacting to the physical exertion of uh, trying to move all that that you got. Move all that? Why did you point? <laughs> move all that that I've got? Yeah, I thought of a more – That didn't seem – I couldn't think of a more eloquent eloquent way to say that, so I decided just to, to go say with it, it. without any eloquence. I understand. Um, but I think it, it's, it really illustrated my point. Well, I don't know what it is, but it, it, it hurts when I run. So I've I, decided maybe it's just not for me. Or maybe just short distances. Well, and I don't get, I don't get any of those symptoms when I'm just sitting there. Interesting. Figure that out. There, it seems like you could do some sort of really interesting case study there. Yeah. Just, well, I already know. I'm a just doc. Just sit there. When you're a doctor, some of the... It just happens. Some people that aren't doctors don't get this. Like like those of us that are doctors. Okay. You don't quite get, you know, what a real study looks like. But I do get the flush, red face, the sweats... Elevated heart rate, tired, fatigued muscles when I run. I don't. I am the healthiest human ever known to man. Absolutely. I don't get any of that. And you're a doctor. And I'm a doctor. I don't get any of that when sitting there watching one of my favorite Netflix shows. Hmm. Don't get it. So you be the judge. I mean, it seems like a no brainer. <laughs> Definite allergy to cardiovascular work. Not even to mention the burning lungs. That can't be good for you. (sighs) See, folks, that's why we're here, giving you the information you need when you need it. Um, Coming up in just a minute, Dr. Christy Williams will be talking to us. She uh, is from Ohio State University and the the Ohio State University. People do that. I mean, there are a lot of Ohio State universities, I guess, but she's from the Ohio State. Well, there's like uh, University or Ohio University. Miami? I don't know. It's yeah. in Ohio. It's next the, to the Miami she, River. And she's from the Ohio dis- State. Make it distinct. And she's going to be talking to us about uh, does it matter when a woman has her first baby? Does it impact her health later on? Hmm. For example, these teenage mothers that have babies when they're younger, are they more likely to be less healthy later in life because of their young births? Or are they healthier? Or does it matter when you have your babies? We're going to find out from a pro, and we're doing this. I have no idea. I mean, I don't know why. I didn't know this was a huge issue, but it is a huge issue because another part of her research talks about marriage, and when when somebody is married younger, does it impact their health later? Hmm. That's part of her study. It's very interesting because you'd think when you have a, a a teenage pregnant mother, we we tend to want them to marry, get married. Get married, marry the guy, marry the guy. But that may actually have adverse health issues. It may not be the option that you mm-hmm. should go with. Interesting in stuff. Okay. It might be better to just not get pregnant. That would probably be the choice. That's where I'd go. <laughs> let's. Uh, but before we do that, let's go to uh, Terry, find out what's going on around the rest of the world. Terry? Found an interesting story. We're talking about lots of politics, lots of results of polling data. There was a poll. It was conducted here on the BYU campus. 
BYU, the Daily Universe, the newspaper here on campus, ran a poll. Oh, on they what? Sent, they sent out a, an email, and they asked people to respond back and uh, to answer the questions. Of the 735 respondents that self-identified as BYU students, 900 responded, but only 735 were students. Okay. But they could be lying because they self-identified. Right. Just giving you all the parameters of this polling study. 30% said they would vote for Democratic Socialist Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Wow. 30% of the 730-some-odd BYU students said they would vote for Bernie Sanders. Interesting. Florida Republican Marco Rubio came in second at 20%. Donald Trump finished seventh in the polling, about 3.7%, which is completely really? opposite of the national polls. And Hillary Clinton came in fifth overall. So 30% but of a highly conservative university would vote for a, a Democratic Socialist. You know why? Why? Free tuition. Free tuition, exactly. Except that wouldn't be at the school. It would be at... Uh, public schools. Public schools. So mm-hmm. I don't know how that would track Well, either. they didn't read the fine print. Interesting. Interesting. Information there. Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump has been threatened to sue opponent Ted Cruz over his eligibility to hold the nation's top office. Now it seems Trump has another target, Marco Rubio. On Saturday, Trump retweeted a message about Cruz and Rubio and how neither are eligible for the presidency. In response, Trump said, I honestly have never looked at it as somebody said... Rubio's not eligible, and I retweeted it. Trump said, I have 14 million people between Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and I retweet things, and we start a dialogue, and it's interesting. Hmm. So that's why he did it. That's why he retweeted something he allegedly knows nothing about. It's because, you know, we're just trying to start a dialogue. Here's Rubio's response. This is a pattern. This is a game he plays. He says something that's edgy and outrageous, and then the media flocks and covers that, and then no one else can get any coverage on anything else. And that worked when there were 15 people running for president. It's not going to work anymore. I'm going to spend zero time on his interpretation of the Constitution with regards to eligibility. Rubio born in Florida to Cuban immigrants. Hmm. Born in Florida. In Florida being the key. On the Florida soil. Soil. He's Not he's, literally, but right. yeah. So it's just more more Trump. But is that Trump's done that before? When there's 15 candidates, he can do that type mm-hmm. of thing. Do, does that track, do you think, that now that there's a smaller number of candidates that it won't work as effectively? Well, I think it'll work on the 35% of the people that love Donald Trump. I do believe so. I'm but not sure if It that probably won't anything. work on everyone else. The NBC exit poll from Saturday night found that a majority of Trump supporters made up their minds more than a month ago. All of the other candidates had to wait until the last few days to lock in most of their voter support. Among those who prefer the next president to come from outside the political establishment, 63% voted for Trump, whereas those who prefer political experience split their vote between Rubio, 38%, and Ted Cruz at 29%. South Carolina Republicans rank terrorism as their nation's top issue, even surpassing the economy and government spending which were the uh, top issues in Iowa and New Hampshire. In fact, nearly three, let's see here, three and four primary voters today uh, favor a ban on non-U.S. Muslims from entering the country. Trump took more than three-quarters of the vote among South Carolina Republicans, whose most valued candidate quality was someone who tells it like it is. Mm. Mm. So if you tell it like it is, apparently people like you more. Apparently. No filters. Just let it go. Just Tell it like it is. During the New Hampshire Liberty Forum over the weekend, Edward Snowden told a crowd that he would return to the United States if guaranteed a fair trial. 
I've told the government I would return if they would guarantee a fair trial where I can make a public interest defense of why this was done and allow a jury to decide. Snowden, appearing via Google Hangouts, said the former NSA contractor has been living in Russia since, what, uh, June of 2013. Wow. Do you think he could get a fair trial? Yeah. The government would let that happen? Well, I think it's already... Or they throw him in, like, Gitmo or something. No. That's the scary... That's what he's afraid of, is that he won't get a... He's going to be disappeared, and you'll never hear from him No, I think a lot of people like what he did. We'll see. I mean, they don't fully understand it. Yeah. There's all kinds of different ramifications that way. Ten years ago today, a a historic event happened. What? It was the last time Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas asked a question from the bench. I know. Isn't that strange? He hasn't asked one question in ten years. (laughs) <laughs> the streak is a record. No other justice in modern history has gone more than a term without asking a question during oral arguments. It's also a source of curiosity and angst in the legal community. The last time Thomas asked a question, February 22nd, 2006, during arguments on a death penalty case. Do you remember the question? I don't. Uh, when are we breaking for <laughs> when's, lunch? When's lunch? <laughs> he's, he's cracked a joke. Has he? And then there was... Um, some small talk with some other justices as they're you know he, getting settled. He but. says he doesn't feel that it adds to the discussion, and that he has to. Well, what, what they what some people speculate is he doesn't like competing for time, and Scalia tends to suck up all the time. Now he's gone, yeah. so maybe does Clarence now come out of the you know, maybe just out of deference to Scalia? He won't ask questions. He says for a that while. pretty much all the questions he wanted to ask have always been asked by somebody yeah. else. So why you know let he's, them take care? Maybe of Maybe he's just an introvert. He he's the shy is. justice. Also, he has he's apparently self conscious of his Georgia accent. Oh, that's sad. I think that would add a lot to the discussion. But, but you'd think after his experience and. All the work he's done, he'd get by that because he's had to have you know, spoken there is at some a point, point along the way. You're a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. I mean, you're as, you're as big as they get. But he comes in, sits down, says nothing, and leaves. Oh, that sounds like a great gig. Just listen and Just walk listen. out the door. Hmm. Interesting. Could, can you imagine not saying anything, not asking any questions in the hearings for 10 years? Even if you had one, you got to ask it, right? Interesting stuff. We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, Dr. Christy Williams will be joining us. She was the co-author of a recent study uh, titled First Birth Timing, Marital History and Women's Health at Midlife. It is a study basically about um, the ideal time uh, for a woman to have a, a, a birth, a baby. And um, she's going to be giving us the latest research about these teenage uh, parents and mothers and what happens to their health later on in life. Many believe that having children so young impacts your your health later on. Also about your marital status um, around the time of birth as well. Interesting research that they've been doing. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. When, you know, is the ideal age or stage to have your first baby? Um, Well, our next guest uh, is a researcher, um, and she has been uh, working on a study and co-authored a study 
called First Birth Timing, Marital History and Women's Health at Midlife. Her name is Dr. Christy Williams. She is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at The Ohio State University and uh, is here to help us understand the impact of teen pregnancy on your health at midlife, also your status of um, uh, being married or not. Does that impact your health as well? Dr. Christy Williams, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you. This is, a, to me, an interesting study. T- tell us how you got into choosing this topic uh, I, mean, I mean, I know that's part of your research areas. How did you get into studying the, you know, I guess this, the the health of of birth and women, and why does it matter? Well, the, what really got me interested into the topic was um, um, some of my earlier work was looking at how marriage influences women's health uh, and and men's health as well. And there's a lot of research that shows that married people are, um, you know, much healthier have longer um, um, lives and and are happier in general than unmarried people. And um, however, I was finding that there's a lot of variation in that, right? And so that's by no means an absolute. And um, what I started to be interested in was really linked to some policy changes that were happening in the wake of welfare reform, which basically um, allocated a lot of money to low-income, to to try to promote marriage among low-income single mothers. And so the question was there, you know, or do um, women who have children outside of marriage or women who have early births, um, will they benefit from marriage to the same extent? And so that then got me interested in looking at, well, just what is the effect of having an early birth or a non-marital birth on women's health? Oh, so that is interesting. So a teen teen birth is one thing, and I guess the policies were saying, okay, if we're going to have these teen girls getting married, it'd be better. I mean, if we're going to have them having babies right. as teenagers – we ought to propose legislation and and um, have have uh, proposals that would that would promote marriage, get them married. That will double. That will create more income opportunities, I guess. But you're finding out in your research, it, it's not necessarily adding up. Talk about what you found in your study. This was a longitudinal study, right? Yes, this is a longitudinal study. We've um, data has been collected on uh, a group of women who were between the ages of 14 and, and 19 in 1979, and so we have information on their birth histories, their marital histories, their financial histories, all the way through from you know young adulthood, some of them in their teens, and now they're they're age 40 to age 50, and mm. so we can look at how these early life factors, like when you have a birth. Uh, and whether you marry later influence health at midlife. Um, and, and what we found is that um, some surprising findings, I mean, you know, a lot of prior research has shown that early births are um, have some negative outcomes for women. Um, and, and we found that um, for teen births in spe- specifically, um, those are associated with worse uh, midlife health outcomes for black women, but not for white women. Hmm. But the really surprising part and what, what people have not looked at previously is how um, births in what we're calling young adulthood, so, um, you know, age 19 to 24, are, whether those are linked to, to worse health outcomes, because we've had a lot of emphasis on sort of decreasing rates of teen births, right? And that's good, and, and we've had a lot of success with that. But, but what happens then is that probably a lot of those births get, just get shifted to early adulthood. Right. And what we found is that early adulthood actually has negative, having a birth when, you know, in sort of a time when women would otherwise be going to college or sort of establishing their careers are, is also linked to poor health. 
at midlife hmm. for women. And that is that just of African American women or all That's women? For both. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Both white and black women. And so um, you know, another way to look at that is that we find that um, teen births are not linked to worse health uh, at midlife for white women, but these early adult, adulthood births are. No, and explain that. What What is the difference to their health? It seems yeah, well, like it would be worse off uh, as a teen. I mean, that's a, that's a very good question. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is really a first step in this program of research. So we, we, you know, the study that we just completed really doesn't look at the explanatory mechanism, sort of what's going on. But we know some things about the demographic characteristics of, of women um, that, that I think point us in, to, toward an explanation. And so for, for white women who are on average more advantaged than black women, those who have their births as teenagers are, are, are probably getting access to a lot of family support, or at least more so than, than, than black women who are more likely to live in single mother homes. And so, you know, probably having a birth while you're a teenager and still living at home and have people who can help you with that and maybe help you finish school and continue to go to college is, is, is probably a good thing. Whereas for white women who have early adulthood births, they're less likely to be at home and have those family resources. Mm. Isn't that interesting? And yet, uh, you know, grandparents still want these babies. It's just, I guess, we assume that they're a young, you're an adult now. Go out and you can do it. You'll be fine. Right. Is that what's happening? Well, I mean, I think we have to, you know, we have to look at the social context of, of, of how people make these decisions about when to have a child, right? And and so, you know, there's, there's research which indicates that um, for people who don't have a lot of other socioeconomic options for achieving adulthood, so people for whom um, they may not be able to afford to go to college, they may not have a big professional career in their future, that becoming a mother is, you know, is, is, is one of the only pathways to adulthood that you may have. And so, you know, people can say, well, you know, it's your own fault for getting pregnant when you're young, you should wait. But you know, we have to look at the social context in which people make these decisions. Totally. And I mean, I guess, and then the, and then also use that to guide our, our policymaking. Right. I mean, because if all of a sudden we might be trapping these young adult women um, just simply because that was the only option they had. Talk about what you found out about marital status. Well, and that, again, sort of this is sort of the, the backward way in, in which we got into this research was was you know, the other important thing that we wanted to look at is, okay, so once someone has um, uh, an early first birth without, you know, without being married, what are the consequences of later getting married? And, and this is, again, very relevant to um, some of the social policies that have been implemented after welfare reform in terms of, of, of trying to uh, promote marriage among low-income single mothers. And, and what we found is that um, women who have who are unmarried and have an adolescent or early adult first birth, um, if they later get married, they have worse self-assessed health at midlife than those who stay single. So unmarried young adult women who get pregnant, young adult being 19 Mm -hmm. to 24-year-old women that get pregnant, that are unmarried and then subsequently get married, have worse health at midlife. That's exactly right. And so this suggests that we need to look at some of the unintended consequences of our social policies when we assume, for example, that, well, marriage is good for everyone and it, it brings benefits to kids, if it, so therefore we should encourage this group to get married. Well, the problem with that is that these effects 
and we can't assume that these effects apply to particular groups. And what we think is going on here, again, we don't know, we haven't tested the exact mechanism, but what we know from other research is that is that you know all marriages are not created equal, right? right? The extent to which marriage is beneficial to health is highly dependent on marital quality, right? How good the marriage is. Right. I mean, anyone who's been in a bad marriage can tell you <laughs> that, right? Yeah. And what we also know is that the partners available to um, women who tend to have these early births, who tend to be you know women with lower levels of education, who live in disadvantaged communities, um, many who live in um, predominantly African-American communities where there are high rates of incarceration of the male population, that the partners available to these women um, are often, you know, they're dealing with a lot of struggles themselves, and um, therefore these unions tend to be, you know, have high levels of, of marital conflict and um, stress, and those things are not conducive to healthy marriages. Interesting, and then that impacts their health later on. Uh, exactly. But I guess as, as compared to, uh, let's say, a young adult um, who gets pregnant, who chooses not to marry the father of the baby or whatever, and then her health actually is better That's statistically. Right. That's right. On average. Yeah, on average. It, it, from these communities, though, too. Um, I mean, we, we didn't... You oh, know, you didn't specify. Okay. We can... Yeah. yeah. So we're, we're controlling to the extent that we can for right. the effect of, you know, low income. But again, many of these births are concentrated among those with, with very low income. It's such an interesting... I mean, and again, you know, the kind of Christian, moral, Judeo-Christian view is you marry the father. and But what we may be doing is is in some of these cases, in certain situations... Uh, creating not only un- lack of health later on in life, but lack of opportunities, lack of everything. That's right. And, and you know, and the other thing to think about is that we know that, that a mother's health has a strong influence on her child's well-being. Sure. And so, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of these policies are, are you know, perhaps motivated really by trying to do what's the best for children's environment, mm-hmm. right? But um, again, I think we need, it's, it's much more complex than, than people think, and we have, to, we have to consider some of these unintended negative consequences that may end up doing more harm than good for did, children. And did, did you find, um, I mean, overall, is there a healthier, is there a healthier way that we, sh- I mean, and, and kind of step that, that is more ideal to a healthy life at midlife? Is that, is that a married couple at a certain age, with a certain, I mean, socioeconomic status, what what fosters healthier lives for moms? Well, I mean, one of the things that that is is, is incredibly evident from decades of research is is the extreme toll that poverty and you know financial stress take on individuals' health. I mean, that's one of the most established finding in in population health research is that um, is that poverty and socioeconomic deprivation takes a huge toll on not only adult health but particularly child health and that it's a cumulative process that happens you know it, it endures throughout the life course and so um, you know my suggestion would be that instead of trying to focus on you know taking money from allocating money from our social welfare services to try to promote marriage, is, is, is probably not the best use of that money. Instead, we could be trying to um, uh, improve the socioeconomic conditions of these populations. Hmm. And I mean, I guess, yeah, you know, first comes 
I guess, financial stability, the ability to be educated, employment opportunities, opportunities in your community to eat healthier, to live healthier, to be healthier. Then comes love. Then comes marriage. <laughs> then comes a baby in a baby carriage. Yeah, I, I, I Put think that, that in would... your book. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I mean, as everyone's aware during this current election season, I mean, one of the big themes is that is that we're we're in a situation where we have higher rates of inequality than we've seen in in you know in a long time, and and I think we're seeing some of that play out in terms of um, you know recent research which has shown declines in in the health of of women and 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 children and the number of children that we have living in poverty. So I think um, my message would be that. You know, that's really where I think if we we're really concerned about the health and well-being of women and children, that um, we need to focus on, you know, how to how to make situ- lives better for children. And um, once, you know, once they are born to a single mother, um, how can we minimize the negative consequences of that? Yeah. Um, well, I, I see it, too, that, I mean, we, you know, we, we see marriage as this powerful institution um, that is that is so supportive of healthy lives and healthy, um, you know, growth and development, and that may be true in certain cases. Except then there's other situations where, like you're saying, you you have people going to prison more regularly, people that are impoverished that don't have the money to even make their bills, that don't have supportive families around them that can watch the kids to enable the child to go to school and or the, the adult parent or the teen parent to go to school. I mean, marriage works, uh, I guess, as a solution if you're also in a different setting. Right. It, Absolutely. I mean, again, it's looking at the context in which marriage occurs. And, and, and one of the things that we know is that um, is that marriage is on the decline, but it's on, de- on the decline in a particular subset of the population, and that's individuals with low levels of education and socioeconomic resources. And there's probably a reason for that. <laughs> yeah, it's not working for them. Exactly. It's actually hurting exactly. their health. Yeah. Exactly. So I think we need to look at, um, given that, that marriage has declined among those populations, what can we do to um, ensure that um, they have other opportunities to uh, ensure socioeconomic well-being. And, you know, I mean, there's a part of me that, and again, this is pure speculation, Mm -hmm. but um, we know that um, socioeconomic stability and background is, is, is associated with higher rates of marriage. So that if we could minimize some of this inequality and improve people's socioeconomic opportunities, then we may actually see increases in marriage rates among these populations. Yeah, so if you're pro-marriage, work on on equalizing opportunity. Exactly. Interesting. I mean, and again, I think part of it is we just want to draw on what we see as the easy solution of just get them married. But right. there's a point where we do need to just get them educated and give, right. a, and we do need we need to get them a job. And again, I mean, our research shows that just getting a mar- trying to just get them married without um, really focusing on the the more fundamental problem could actually backfire and have some negative consequences in this case for women's health. Well, exactly, and on this whole pursuit of marriage. I mean, yeah. so if, if we're being moral about marriage, part of the morality is equal opportunity, equal education. Give them other opportunities to to allow a marriage to work. That's exactly right. Huh, that is powerful. Um, where do you see your research going from here? Well, one of the things we want to do is again, I you know, you asked some of the very good questions that you asked are about sort of what explains these patterns, yeah. right? Is it um, is it that um, you know why are why is marriage linked to worse health outcomes for women? 
um, after they've had a non-marital birth. And, and we want to try to look at, um, you know, what explains that. Is it that, um, is it that their socioeconomic status actually declines? After they marry, perhaps they're, you know, if they're marrying a partner who is not bringing anything to the table and perhaps being a drain on resources, um, that's something that we can look at. Um, we can also look at um, other um, health behaviors that are linked to stress, so um, things like smoking, uh, drinking. Um, how, how do those differ for women who have had, um, who, who marry after a non-marital birth compared to women who stay, who stay single? Do, do you sense that... Um is is the second uh birth different um on the on the mother's health over time if she's married than the first birth did you check second births that's a good question no we have not looked at that um thank you for that research <laughs> yeah there you go no i think that's a very good question we do have we do have data on that um and and so you know we can look at um, and and also just how many how many births women have and and what the marital mm. context of that is. Because I'm assuming if if we're talking about just the conditions of a lower economic status, female maybe married uh, married the husband or the father of the baby, um, but then eventually went on to have five other children. I, right. I bet her health would be really struggling. Right. I mean, we did look in this analysis at whether um, the, the number of children women eventually had explains the patterns that we see, and, and we didn't find any evidence of that. Mm. So it, in terms of um, it wasn't just that women who had an early birth went on to have, you know, many more children. Yeah. Um, but I think, um, you know, looking at the impact of each subsequent child, um, I think there's more that we could do there. It's also interesting to know that that uh, without any of these um, participants being probably being researchers, um, they, they still know that marriage isn't working for them at that state. <laughs> so they're just not doing it anymore. I mean, people are smart, right? They're, they know what's they, – I mean, they may have hope it's going to work, but they know it's not working. That's why they're stopping. That's exactly right. And there's, there's some, some, some really good uh, research by a sociologist, Catherine Eden, who uh, does qualitative work. So she goes out and, 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 and sort of interviews women, you know, does these in-depth interviews with them, which is different than the survey research that I'm doing, and really asks them, what, you know, what are your views of marriage? Um, um, and so she's looked at women who have had, um, you know, non-marital births and asked them, why aren't you married? And do you want to get married? And overwhelmingly, she's found that, that women do want to get married. Hmm. They, they, it's not that they don't like marriage or right. they, they think it's something that they don't aspire to. And in many ways, they, they revere marriage and, and see it as a, as a goal, as sort of a, a capstone, something that they want to achieve. But they're also very aware of the, you know, the, 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 the negatives of getting married when you're not financially stable. And so yeah. they, they see it as, you know, first I'm having a child, then I want to achieve some, some financial stability, and maybe then I can find a marriage. And, and, and it's, it's smart. I mean, because it's not, they also know it's not working. It may not work with this person. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's, you know, you, women who, who you know, they, they're raising a child, they care about the social environment that their child is going to, they don't just want to marry anybody. Right? Mm -hmm. right, right. <laughs> you want to wait and find the, the best, um, the best partner and one that's going to um, contribute to their ability to raise their child successfully. Well, it's fascinating work, and I appreciate, uh, Christy, your willingness to share it. Thank you so much for enlightening us, letting us know what's going on in, uh, in your research. 
Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Again, Dr. Christy Williams from The Ohio State (laughs) University. Uh, Interesting stuff, folks. She's an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Ohio State University, uh, teaching us some insights, I think powerful insights about um, you can't just throw one solution at it. Marry. Just get married. I mean – Not everyone's created equally, uh, you know, as far as opportunities in this world. And we don't have the same, we don't have the same, you know, benefits. And we don't have the same education, educational opportunities. We don't have equality. Um, Even though marriage is a good thing, it doesn't necessarily equate to health if it's not done in a healthy way. We'll take a break, come back, uh, do a little coach's corner on marriage and find out, uh, you know, some other myths that we might want to work on when it comes to creating healthier marriages. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, I am a big uh, proponent of marriage. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental uh, resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's 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 essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal, right? So if, if a 19 to 24-year-old person gets pregnant, historically we'd say you got to marry, marry the man. Marry the man. That you know makes it legit. Now we've got a legitimate thing going on here. And then all of a sudden we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole. And the problem is it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic – with economic struggles. So it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. But again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or, you know, things happen that all of a sudden you're pregnant, one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one-on-one. What is the, the, the educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What, what is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's, these are all important parts of the decision. And there are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father? What are the, what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out? 
So, you know, it used to make more sense. And I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in in smaller town kind of Christian-supported cultures and environments because you had a tight-knit group maybe more around you. But in inner-city, difficult, financially strained situations— it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, and if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a, in a marriage um, if if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up, a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist, though. And um, to think that it's the answer Sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is, um, you know, there's it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here, that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that Um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? We got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the, the reality is, is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. But <laughs> some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction. But it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first, and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, uh, Let's do one more, and then we'll take a break. Um, Differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is, not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship. Just like, you know, uh, potential I- infections and issues in our environment are better for your Im- for your immunization, for your uh, immunology, your ability for your immune system to be strengthened. You need a resistance, right? You need to have something fighting against you. The same is true in our marriages. Whenever somebody tells me we never fight, 
I don't think, oh, they're healthy. I immediately think, well, how? Is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Uh, Thank you. And another myth that we've got to blow up. We'll take a break, come back, continue this coaching corner, give you a few more myths about marriage that we need to uh, really focus and deal with. Stick with us, folks. Helping you uh, love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um, another little uh, myth for you as we're debunking some of the myths about uh, marriage. Um, we've kind of already talked about the fact that, uh, you know, in your marriage, kids can bring happiness, but they also can bring dissension and division. So it depends on what you're focusing on. That's one merit myth we got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex. Less sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex and they're actually having better sex as they would rate it than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are, uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But uh, 43% said that of the singles, um, Women who were ages between the ages of 25 and 29 reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex, uh, ha- having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's you know pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's it's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big dis- d- uh, division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researchers said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Our goal is to help you love stronger. Ah, I think we accomplished it. We'll be right back. Stick with us for a whole new hour of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach. 
your guide on the side. We do what we can on this show three hours a day to give you the information, the real solutions to your real-life problems. <sighs> Today we'll be talking about online dating. Ugh, blasted. Computer dating. Is it something, uh, is it something you're looking forward to? Or uh, also, you may be noticing out there in single world that a lot of the people are struggling to actually even want a relationship. Are are the people uh, that I guess aren't married, are they becoming less and less likely to want and to dismiss a relationship? Interesting, interesting research we'll be discussing with Dr. Vanita Mehta um, in just a few moments. Uh, she'll be joining us to talk about, uh, you know, maybe we're not as attached as we used to be. And it's our parents to blame. You know how they are. Hey, uh, we'll be getting into that in just a few minutes. But uh, before we do that, i got to talk about this, uh, some of the the crazy stuff going on in the news. Um, Batman, you know, fantastic hero, saving a lot of lives. Uh, But Batman, a man dressed as Batman, apparently it wasn't the actual Batman. Um, but he did pull up in a Batmobile with a little friend named Robin. Interesting. Orange County, Florida deputies say someone dressed as Batman robbed a pair of dollar stores in East Orange County. They say the suspect walked into the dollar store around 8 p.m. He demanded cash, and the clerk, the clerk of course, complied. About 90 minutes later, that same thief in his bat garb and tights apparently showed up at a Dollar General store across town and robbed that store. He's all over the place. Hmm. The guy is moving from dollar store to dollar store. Now, why would you go after the dollar store? Maybe just he's going for cash. Possibly. He wanted small, unmarked bills. I mean, he's got that movie coming out where he's fighting Superman, so maybe that's where all the kryptonite is? Doubt maybe? It. No? There are some weird things on this, on those aisles at the dollar store. They have some interesting products. I, I did not see any kryptonite. There could be. <laughs> I think he's just going for dollars. Okay. I didn't know that's where you buy them. Dollars at the dollar store? Mm-hmm. It would fit. Totally. Like, I mean, like, you're like, like your, your taser store will have tasers. Yeah. Why wouldn't the dollar store have dollars? Well, in fact, glad you brought up tasers. Oh, good. Because we're trying to get them in the dollar store. Oh, they're not they're not biting. Hmm. Um, Is it, the price point too high? Is I mean, can you adjust that? No, they just say it's not. It doesn't work with our people. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Hmm. Nobody needs a taser more than somebody leaving a dollar store. You actually have allegedly dollars on you. Yeah. Well, you probably have fewer. Well, because you just went to the store. Hey, um, question for you. You are a a self-proclaimed um careful um what do we how do we say this uh lover of fictional superhero characters yes that was a very very i like that that was a good way to put that i was about you to, could have gone any direction yeah, you were a superhero many geek, of them derogatory yeah no but so if you were going to rob a bank let's say not a bank or a dollar store an establishment of some kind any type of establishment yes. where they have dollars what would you dress up what what character would you want to be? Well, 
do you want one that people recognize or do you, or, 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 or would I think that maybe I want to do one maybe lesser known that I no, can help to, I would to just, promote so that other people oh, would experience this? No, I wouldn't go for promotion. Just okay. go which character is just naturally you and that if you're going to don some tights, mm. you would be totally fine donning tights in honor of this person. None really. No, come on. No, I – You have to choose one. Do I? Yeah. I have to? Mm-hmm. It's a must. Maybe Batman. Batman. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can see why he did it. Because you walk in with the cowl and little pointy bat ears, and you have a huge cape. Yeah, and the bat belt. Yeah, and and for the most part, most of superheroes are really not recognizable. But other, you're, unless you're someone who really pursues it. And then out front, your Impala is just idling. Right. And if you roll in in, like, the Green Lantern outfit, people would be like, who are you? What are you wearing? <laughs> Why are you in green? Yeah. That's what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do you – know, I would only do one masked character. See, they have these Red Lanterns. Ah. That their, their power – see, Green Lantern, his power all comes from courage. Yeah. As The more courage he has, the more bravery he has, the more power he has. Hmm. Now – the the red lantern his comes from rage he's just angry and i tend to experience these yeah, fits of rage of at times lantern. so that would be a character i'd like to huh. promote but walking in and like head to toe red yeah. spandex might be a little bit much i don't know ben and then does i'd it have to day. explain and it's just uh, so much hassle yeah so maybe not neither you can't go with the obscure if you walk in with like dressed as a viking with a hammer <laughs> are they going to get thor i don't know yeah I'd probably go in as Taser Man. Taser Man? You might have to explain. The lesser, he's the lesser known Marvel superhero, but it's pretty self explanatory. Tase it. <sighs> I'd win every fight. But do you see the predicament there? If you come in with like a favorite hero that no one knows about, yeah. you look foolish. But if you walk in and you're Batman or Superman, it's like, well, everyone knows that. There's no originality there. Right. Yeah. Well, then you're just a wannabe. So I would say no superheroes. I'd go as the Lone Ranger because you're on a horse. Just walking. If I walked into a dollar store, well, not me. If I was on the back of a horse Uh and we walked in. It's like an Old Spice commercial. To a dollar store. (laughs) Tell me everybody wouldn't be like, wow, look at that guy. He's on a horse. Why is he wearing a mask? Wouldn't that be like the coolest thing? It only way? covers his eyes. We can totally see his face. And you just walk up to the register and wait in line with your horse. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on the back of the horse and I'm like, this is a stick up. Mm. And because the Lone Ranger had silver bullets. He did. Yeah, that's what I'd do. Don't you think the ladies would be like, oh, no. wow. I really don't. I think this is one of the dumb criminal situations. That you tend to try to talk about. No, no, no. This isn't a dumb criminal. You think that he, he has some well, intelligence that's a, there? Well, no, that guy. The Batman guy is dumb. Because he went from one dollar store to another dollar store? 90 minutes later. Okay. You think by then the rest of the dollar stores might be on alert? Yeah. You think the general manager of the area of dollar stores would be like, um, watch out for a guy dressed like Batman. Batman's in the area. Um, yeah. Lenny? Yeah, he's here now. Who? The Batman guy. Give him everything he wants. There's also a man here on a horse. That see, then I would come in and save the day. Some more of maybe the combo superhero would be more interesting. Yeah, 
Just yeah. coming in one at a time. Just get it over. Get it like three or four in a row. Did you hear who Ben would come in as? This is weird. Little Bo Peep? No, George Washington. Interesting. Because it's his birthday today. Really? So he's, he's dressed like George Washington. He's even got the white wig and everything on. It's crazy. Yeah, the powder's all I, over the room. I just remember what Apollo <laughs> Creed looked like when he came in. Yeah. Like as George Washington, and I thought I could pull that off too. Apollo Creed? Yeah. Did he come in like George Washington? Yeah. So like his first fight. Don't you know this? I don't remember that. And it was just so magnificent that I thought wow. it would be perfect for me. Well, you look great, except they're going to get mad when they try to get all the powder off of the board there. Yeah, I'll, I'll let Garrett figure that yeah. out. I think he's it's in not, here It's next. not even your problem. Yeah, I mean. Garrett's problem. Uh, let's get to Terry. Terry, anything else going on in the headlines? What do we need to focus on? There is some uh, headlines from over the weekend. Donald Trump won South Carolina primary. Hillary Clinton with a win in Nevada. The Republicans move on to Nevada primary on Tuesday. That's tomorrow. And the Democrats are in South Carolina on Saturday. Here's another uh, a stat that I found with the GOP. 14 states have a GOP election in the next two weeks. Wow. Donald Trump is ahead in 10 of those states. <sighs> it's going to happen. See what happens. A, the suspected gunman behind the shooting rampage in Kalamazoo, Michigan, reportedly picked up customers throughout the night between three locations where he killed six people and injured mm. two others Saturday. Jason Brian Dalton was arrested later that night, and the motive behind the shooting spree is still unclear as the investigation continues. Apple Chief Executive Tim Cook and FBI Director James Comey have been invited to appear before the House Energy and Commerce Committee Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations to discuss the encryption issue that have put them at odds. The request is not legally binding, so no subpoenas being issued here. They're just a invitation to come down and come over to D.C. and discuss the issue. Apple is currently not complying with a court order for Apple to help unlock a phone belonging to one of the San Bernardino shooters. Hmm. Ted Cruz, too Canadian to be president. An Illinois judge says he'll dis- or she'll decide in March whether he has jurisdiction over that question. Cook County Circuit Court Judge Maureen Ward-Kirby has set a March 1st date to hear arguments about whether Cruz's birthplace of Calgary, Alberta, makes him ineligible to run for president. Hmm. Ph- pharmacist and lawyer... Always a good combo. Yeah, it's great. Lawrence <laughs> Joyce, who supports Ben Carson, filed the complaint and says he's too busy to appear for arguments before March 1st. The Illinois primary comes. He's He's got a pharmacy to run. The, uh, what, the Illinois primary comes on March 15th, uh, USA Today reports. Meanwhile, a Cruz attorney appeared in court Friday and said it is very, very clear that Cook County has no jurisdiction over the case because Cruz wasn't served properly with the complaint. <sighs> Silly. I love it. We're going to find out if it's legal well, to don't. be born in Canada and run for president of the United States. I think we already know that. But a judge hasn't said so. Right. And if this was Trump, he'd say, I don't really know. I just retweeted it. I just tweeted it. I don't even know. I don't know what's happening here. Speaking of Donald. What? In the wake of Saturday night's victory in South Carolina, Donald Trump acknowledges that he probably needs to act more presidential and says that he'll do so, quote, pretty soon. I'm, I'm I'm having my people look at that, and then we'll do it. The often brash Trump tells Fox News Sunday, I think I'll be very presidential at the appropriate time. Right now, I'm fighting for my life. Trump says that he can act as presidential as anybody that's ever been president other than the great Abraham Lincoln, who he says was hard to beat. As wow. for speculation about his inevitability, he goes, I don't want to say the nomination is mine. I don't want to say I mean, I'm thinking it every day, but I do not want to say it. 
But he will eventually then go presidential. Eventually he will act as presidential as anybody oh, yeah. except Abe Lincoln. Again, I think the emphasis should be on the word act. Apparently all of these people are just acting. No way. It just seems like what we need is somebody that's presidential. Hmm. <sighs> we'll see what happens. Yeah, someday. Excellent job. Excellent job, Terry. We are going to take a break, my friends, and when we come back, we will be uh, having a discussion about some of the latest and greatest research on um, dating and relationships. Are we, are we actually kind of – are certain people giving up on dating altogether? Are they losing the fire to even try to date? Um, interesting information about our attachment styles and how it's impacting our dating life. Stick with us, folks. If you're single, if you know somebody that's single, this is one you're going to want to listen to. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, there's a predicament in modern American life, and you might know it all too well. We need relationships to be happy, but we see other people in a less positive light than we used to. Research shows that while meaningful relationships totally benefit our lives, we're increasingly more dismissive of other people. Are we simply less invested in relationships than we used to be? Our next guest, Dr. Vanita Mehta, is a clinical psychologist from Washington, D.C., and uh, she is here to talk to us today about an article that she wrote in Psychology Today, Have We Become Less Capable of Forming Relationships? Dr. Vanita Mehta, welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you for having me again. You bet. See, you did such a great job, uh, Doc, that we got to have you back. Hello. Well, thank you. Hi there. Good to have you. And um, talk to us about your this phenomenon. We we know we need relationships, right? We know we need to be closer to people, and yet it seems like we're becoming less, you know, more dismissive, less inclined to lean toward other people. Yes, yeah, so this is a really interesting study. Very powerful, also because of the sheer sample size. They. What the uh, researchers did, this was a study led by Sarah Conrath, who I believe is at the University of Michigan still. And what she did was she did a roundup of the studies that were out there looking at whether what something that we call attachment style has changed over uh, almost three decades. And the sample was actually college students. And in the when they crunched the numbers, what they found is that there was a significant decline in secure relationships and a significant increase in insecure attachment style. Oh, wow. And, and yeah. it's attachment, so that's pretty remarkable. That, it is remarkable, and that is um, this attachment style we've talked about before on the show in the past about this is like one of the key, uh, I guess, forces they're finding in our relationships that that either has us kind of engaged and connected, wanting to be in the relationship, or maybe detached from the relationship, not interested. Exactly. Exactly. And so the way that um, the model of attachment that she used was how we see ourselves and others. And secure is pretty much what you would expect. You know, we see ourselves in a positive light. We see others in a positive light. But what she noted was, and she and her team, was that there was a rise in what's called dismissive attachment, which is to see oneself in a positive light, but to see others in a more negative light. Mm. 
And so then the question becomes, well, why would this attachment, this insecure attachment style, dismissive attachment, why would there be a rise in that particular kind of style? Talk about the rise. What what were they seeing? I mean, was it a dramatic rise? Is it a what's how big of an issue is this? Well, they said it was a it would be considered statistically significant. Mm. And yeah. so, you know, that in terms if we look at it in terms of a statistical trend, then we can say, OK, that's something we should. That's that's a big change. So we are and, there really is data now validating the fact that uh, maybe these and is it generational is or is it or is it situational? Like, is it just anybody today up to the age of 65 on average, we're more dismissive of our relationships or do we sense that it's kind of more of a millennial effect? What's where do we see it happening? Well, that's a that's a great question. So this sample was specifically uh, college students. OK, so what we're seeing is a change over time in college students. And what uh, the way that they interpreted their results, they they looked at two major areas, and one was a change in how the and change in family structure, noting that there has been a rise in, of divorce, parents have less time and money to invest in their children, grandparents do not live as closely by as they used to, they're not as integrated in the household. So really, the you know the family unit is becoming. Uh, you know, is weakening and not really giving people that what we would call a secure base from which to form a positive sense of self and a positive outlook of who others are. Mm. That's yeah. interesting. And, and again, that it almost can you can you can see it kind of in in just uh, the people I work with, even here at the university with our students that are, you know, let's just get a lot of other things done before we worry about marrying or dating. Yes, and you can see that there's a less of, you know, the, this dismissive type of attachment. It's very interesting about it, too, and I see it, uh, you know, I, I see it, actually, I see more preoccupied people, people who see themselves in a the negative light, and mm-hmm. uh, people who see others in a more negative light. Those are actually the people who tend to end up in therapy more than the people who are, say, dismissive, who see themselves in a more positive light. Right. But... Um, you know, that said, that there is um, so they're looking to. Uh, what's really interesting is, is if the dismissive attachment style tends to be a little bit what we would call colder, a little bit at a remove, somebody who can detach from a relationship very quickly, and so that that's and the other thing. In addition to the family structure uh, changing and weakening, they also look to the rise of online communications and media. And that the nature of the way we're even communicating with each other has also changed and putting us more at a distance from one another. Mm. Which would play in the hands of a dismissive, maybe, or even a preoccupied, huh? Yeah, why talk when you can text? That's so. right. That's right. <laughs> That's, uh... <laughs> so, so in a weird way, this is because the attachment styles go back to our, our childhood, our, our infancy, and our relationship, and whether we felt safe with our parents, whether we felt that they were predictably there for us. Um, talk about that. I mean, because is this something that, can, that we can change? I think that, you know, not to sound like too much of a policy wonk, although I'm here in Washington, D.C., I think that if we could really support parents and communities in terms of the investment, time, responsivity, sensitivity that we give to our children, 
would be the key. I, I think a lot of parents are just feeling it's not that they don't want to. It's just that they are very strapped for time. And uh, that it's, it, you know, that, so that if we really want to change this systemically, we would need to give parents that kind of support. Right. That said, I think at the same time, if we are aware of what the conflict is, that we can begin to redirect our attention to investing more in our relationships and seeing them as really, you know, the, the most important thing in life. Uh, that That's... they are so... That they're they're just they're as important as achievement. Let's yeah. say no, and that it really is. That's a you know it almost would have to be kind of an intentional shift to the parents, but also to the to the policymakers. You know, in businesses and creating more space, and you know, be thinking that we we can detach for a little bit from our work and go home and be parents instead of having to you know be a permanent employee all the time, all the time on. Exactly, and I think too maybe another. You know, looking to that other piece about the way that we communicate with each other using our phones, using email, using text, you know, this whole uh, phenomenon of ghosting, that we can also intentionally say that you know, perhaps we should be placing more of an emphasis on how we can treat each other uh, better and more warmly and graciously and uh, not to just... Uh, disappear on people, but to have conversations and to understand the importance of face-to-face communication. It's so it's it's interesting too because we don't know the long-term impact, do we, of all this technology? We we kind of get a sense that it's not necessarily healthy, but we maybe now we're starting to get the first batch of data. I would say you know, it would seem so because when you think about well, how long have we all had iPhones or smartphones? And, uh, you know, and how is it that we're actually functioning now and how it is that we uh, experience our relationships now? This is a very, uh, you know, I I wonder if this study is a signal, a larger signal where we're headed. Well, maybe that's, yeah, why we got to jump on it. Um, So in your your work, and really what I guess we're seeing is that um, because of the attachment, we have we have fewer people. It's uh, you know a, a smaller group of um, college students feel securely attached, so they're probably picking up some of the other styles of dismissive or preoccupied or fearful, and um, mm-hmm. and then so the long term impact, I guess, is is probably uh, you know dismissing the need for others, being too busy to be dating or being with others, or just afraid of being with others. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, not being comfortable with intimacy, closeness, and devaluing. I think that that's a a really important part of it, too, is that there is a, that this is part of it, devaluing the importance, devaluing what uh, intimacy brings to our lives. And and then in the end, yeah, as if we don't need it. Um, So the odds are really high, it seems like. That if someone's out there in dating land, they're going to come across these different attachment issues. Exactly. You know, it would not uh, be surprising for somebody to run into someone else who has an avoidant style. I mean, what's very interesting is that it'll be interesting to see where the research goes because up until this point, what we've been seeing is is that females tend to tip towards preoccupied, and men tend to tip more towards dismissive, huh. and then they find each other. <laughs> and then there's a, you know, then there's a dance where the woman feels like 
you know, why isn't he interested in me? And the man feels like, well, why, you know, why does she want to be so close? And you can see how that just, you know, it's almost like a lock and a key finding each other. And it just that relationship dynamic clicks. And then that gets we'll into, well, yeah, and that gets into the age old marriage issue of um, kind of pursuer withdrawer, one's chasing, one's running, and then kind of just the, the communication issues that that exactly. fall out from that. Wow. Exactly. Do you, do you, um, so is there a way to override it? Is there a way to have our desire um, kind of override our 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 history? Well, you know, I think that that's a place for, you know, obviously I think where therapy can help and where I think intentionality and awareness can help to take a look at, you know, what you to take a look at oneself and say, well, what kind of attachment style am I? And if you do fall into, say, insecure, which would be fearful, preoccupied or dismissive, then to begin to take the steps to be able to, to change uh, to change that. Mm. But I think also there, you know, relationships don't happen just in a vacuum. We need to have real experiences with other people that will give us a new foundation, a new template of how it is we can be in relationships with other people. So you need to actually have positive experiences in order to build more positive experiences. Interesting. Yeah. Which is hard if you're trying to avoid them. Uh, you're not, you're not getting out there and having the experiences you need. Oh, wow. You know what? Let's yeah. do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Venita Mehta. If you go to her website, venitameta.com, um, great uh, resource. Actually, drvenitameta.com, um, great resource there as well because you can go find all of her Psychology Today blogs and some of the great work she's doing. We'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion about our attachment styles and how they may be actually – Uh, you know, impacting our ability to form healthy relationships. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, hoping to help you uh, love a lot stronger. We'll be right back. Everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. If you've noticed your college-age student or your college-age kids aren't uh, necessarily that excited to get out into the dating world, well, it may be because they have um, an attachment style issue where they, according to the latest research, they may be taking on more of an insecure attachment, meaning they're maybe more dismissive, more preoccupied, more fearful of relationships which has gone up to about 58% of the college-age uh, students that were sampled. Um, it's gone up from 1988. It was 51% today in tw- or in 2011. The research shows it went up to 58.38%, <sighs> which means you might have children that dismiss the relationship or, or really look at it as if it's, uh, you know, it's, they devalue it. You don't even need a relationship. Or some are so preoccupied trying to get their career launched, their their life started, and or some are fearful. And because of this, 
they might uh, actually seem less capable and are less capable of forming healthy relationships. That's according to um, our uh, our expert on the phone with us, Dr. Vanita Mehta, um, and she's walking us through some of this research and an article that she wrote for Psychology Today. Uh, Vanita, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. You bet. What else, what do you think? I mean, because this too, like you were saying, also moves into the communication realm where we might be using this all, all this technology to maybe even perpetuate, to inflict some of these attachment <laughs> style issues um, on those people around us. It is a very curious thing that it seems that with avoidant attachment, you know, e-communications, whether that be texting or emailing, uh, being able to, that thing about keeping people at a remove, e-communications and dismissive attachment seem almost made for each other. Yeah, right. It's like, yeah, it's the weapon of choice is, is the online. You wrote another article on Psychology Today about 14 ways to be a better online dater. Give us some of your tricks of the trade. What are some things... That uh, I mean, I guess ideally, if you know you have an insecure attachment style, you probably ought to go get a counselor, a therapist, get some help, work on it kind of directly, um, and maybe even before you're online. But if not, when you do get online, what are some of the tricks of the trade that we should be focusing on? I mean, I think that when you, when you, do, when you look for a potential partner, somebody to date, have a relationship with online, you want to get a sense of what their commitment level, what clues you can pick up on in their profile, how it is that they describe themselves. You know, and in some, in some forums, they, in some platforms, they are, you know, people are very clear about what it is that they're looking for. Uh, I would pay very close attention to that, but also to understand when you actually meet somebody that the way that somebody sees themselves and how it is that you experience them, I mean, that's the whole thing. You know, that can be a very large gap or right. perhaps, you know, a match. That's right. You, <laughs> I mean, and that's, that's really, I think, an interesting kind of approach to this is you got to know your – you got to know you and you've got to know them. One of your rules I know is like a 70-30 ratio about describing yourself versus describing what you're looking for. Why is that yeah, so, so important? Yeah, so I mean, the idea being that that when there is when it's heavily weighted, if your profile is very I I I, and you want to be more we and you, uh, mm-hmm. and to really think, of, you know, to talk more about what it is that you are looking for, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, what it is, you know, uh, kind of a putting out a set of criteria into the world, uh, saying, you know, this is what I am, and you know. Only contact me if you have these qualities. <laughs> if you're into me enough. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. It's so sad, though. But we we are we are becoming kind of the selfie, self indulged, self focused person. Yeah, I think too. Just if you know, radiating a sense of warmth, kindness, uh, being very you know again honest. You know, showing your sense of humor, showing what you what you really are interested in. I mean. I think the idea there is to be really as accurate as you possibly can, to be as earnest in your profile as much as can be conveyed. And that, that I mean, we've heard about the research of how inaccurate some of those um, <laughs> profiles really are, which is one of the reasons why it's probably so easy to dismiss online dating because you feel like they're all fakes. I, I think so. 
so. I mean, you hear about you know one bad situation, and it seems that we have a negative bias that you know, say to say, oh boy, you know, online dating can be a bad thing. But on the other hand, it can be a very useful way for people to find each other in a busy world. But also in terms of thinking about what it is that would be a very good match for you, hmm. you know, what really, what kind of person you would really get along well with. That's great, and. Um... I guess some of this just should be common sense, and maybe the deeper root of it is to figure out, have a good example, really, of what your attachment style is. How do you know what your style is? Is there is there a way to do that before going to see a clinician to be officially evaluated? Is there a simple way to know? Well, there. I mean, in the sense that there, if you go online, here I am talking about e-communications, but if you can go online and there, you can just, you can find all kinds of attachment quizzes that will tell you what your style is. But I mean, if you're just thinking about, um, you know, secure pretty much what you would expect, you know, that you feel comfortable in relationships, you see yourself and others in a positive light. Uh, I think the people who tend to get in the most trouble are the people who see themselves in a negative light. Yeah. And that, you know, that's when relationships feel uh, not just, uh, just you know, unsatisfying, but also a little scary. People who feel they have to twist themselves up into a pretzel to get the, you know, any kind of attention from another person. Right. And if you're falling into that space, I think that's something important to be looking at. Yeah, you don't want to lose yourself in order, especially because you could very well be dating a dismissive that it doesn't matter anyway. But they'll just absorb you. And if you're somebody who feels like you're not good enough, dating somebody who doesn't value relationships, all that's going to do is confirm the beliefs that you have in the world that that you're not good enough to be loved when, in fact, you just happen to be with somebody who doesn't. Uh, you know, value closeness. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, we appreciate it. I think it's great work and wonderful insight. Um, Dr. Vanita Meta, uh, if you go to her website, Dr. Vanita, V-I-N-I-T-A, Meta, M-E-H-T-A dot com, Dr. Vanita Meta. And again, go look up her Psychology Today articles on ways to be a better online dater and have uh, we become less capable of forming relationships. So appreciate it. Great, great insight from a true professional Uh, We'll take a break, my friends. Come back with our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. This is uh, a little tribute music to our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Uh, we'll find out why from our good buddies, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Hi. What's the music? We can't hear it. This is, oh, you can't hear it? We'll pump it oh, up Oh, now here. we can. Little Stevie Tyler. Oh, dream on. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And, Steven Tyler. And this was a this was a, a fan favorite of uh, apparently Spencer. You wanted us to play a little Steven Tyler for you. Indeed it was. Why? And it is one of my, my favorites. Here's the funny thing. He was not the original voice of that song. He wasn't. No. Was Jerem? Um, Jerem probably could pull it off. Oh, he, I was not a born. He just did. I think I thought Jerem was one of the love children of Steven Tyler. <laughs> I'm Liv Tyler's brother. Are you? You look just like I was also like in Liv. Lord of the Rings. You know what? 
You, I could, I could believe that you really are one of Stephen's children. <laughs> massive talent. I don't know what to think of. No, that. it's massive talent. Oh, is that where you're going? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, and uh, huge, high voice. Uh, He's sixty-seven. Uh, I man. know. I was just looking at that. He's lucky to be alive. He's sixty-seven, and the dude can still wail. Yeah. I think it was American Idol that really helped him. Oh, my goodness. Don't you think? Yeah. When he said, <laughs> I saw Janis Joplin in concert when I was 16, I was like, whoa, what? dude, you are old. Oh, yeah. You're so old. <laughs> he really, I mean, you think about it. He's been around a long time. Since before time itself. Since before time. He was a baby boomer. He is a baby boomer. Aero, he's been with Aerosmith since 1970. I was born in 69. Hmm. I mean, that's old. That's older than my hips. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you know my hips, they're very old. Uh, 67 years of age, um, born in 1948. That's amazing. But, that, I mean, serious. He's still, he's still screaming. I mean, if that's what you, I mean, he's singing. Yeah, he's not just screaming. Warm of, <laughs> he's singing. Again. He's also singing. So yes, I requested that because Jeremy and I saw him in concert. Did you now? Yes. Oh, you guys, you're two of the hippest, coolest people watching old people sing. Our our inner circles were connected to invite <laughs> us to an exclusive concert with Steven Tyler. Was it just the three of you? Hashtag Qualtrics. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Getting a little help and support from Qualtrics. Um, so w- was there other other musicians or was it just Steven? It was an opening act that I didn't bother to pay attention to, primarily because we went out to dinner knowing that there would be an opening act. You didn't like the loving Marys. Yeah. <laughs> the, his, the band that he played with was really good, really yep. talented. So the band that he played with opened up. Well, and what do you remember the name of that band? Was the Loving it? Marys. Oh, that was Steven the Loving. Tyler They're and from the Nashville. Loving Marys. He was really, an opening act. Really talented country. That's great. Girl. Yeah, that's fantastic. Did now I need Spencer? I need you to answer this. When when Stephen saw Jerem, was there was there a moment of awkward silence? Was there? Did their eyes widen up? I mean, what oh, happened? There was a con- there was a connection. Was there an sure. obvious moment? There was a connection. It was warmth. It was. Mm. Understanding. Did Jerem say, "Daddy"? No, he did not say that. Father. <laughs> my my little girl watches a show called Peppa Pig. Yeah, bunch of English. Daddy. Yeah, so she says, "Daddy." Like, this is what? great. Your your daughter's going to be bilingual. On holiday, Listen, I'm my, like, you my mean on vacation? My four and a half year old <laughs> is now comprehending that people in England speak a different way because we had to explain it to him because oh, wow. of that yeah. cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. The school fate. What is the school fate in England? It's it's called the school fate. It's the school fair. Oh, in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, wow. So he's like, oh, I love this episode. The school fate. Like, huh? You know, well, fate. Let's let's talk about destiny and fate. Okay? You know, my children learned about England through Shakespeare, and our children will learn through Peppa Pig. <laughs> It's a different day. Hey, by the way, happy George Washington's birthday. Yeah, that's right. February 22nd. Yeah. Up, man. Yeah. Don't you think? I mean, it's one. one of the greatest ever. Greatest of all time. It's also Be Humble Day. Be thou humble. Okay. <laughs> Breaking into hymns, a first on the Matt Townsend Show. Jerem singing Steven Tyler, and I'm singing hymns. Hey, um, 
You guys, you, you need to explain <laughs> something to me. Okay. Uh, apparently, um, apparently, something happened to BYU against San Diego. Largest victory over a Division One opponent in school history. Is Red Bull sponsoring BYU now? <laughs> At home. Apparently. Yes, and they'll also start playing on Sundays. <laughs> Don't go there. Uh, so apparently uh, something kicked in. What was it? I think it's altitude. San Diego is an atrocious team on the road, and BYU played really well. Hmm. It was an exact opposite of what happened on Thursday night when San Diego's coach called that game against BYU, which was a loss by two points, the best game they'd played all year. And mm. It was a loss. Yeah. Unbelievable. But, it, I mean, looked great. Holy cow. Looked then, fantastic. Yeah, I mean. It just seems like there's a point. You just got to quit beating down on them. Just got to quit. San Diego, BYU beat San Diego by an average of 30 points last week. <laughs> <laughs> a two-point yeah. win and a, a 58-point win. Unbelievable. Two completely different games. Uh, so I'm assuming you'll talk about that on your show. Yeah, and the fact that BYU could win the conference championship and what? be the number one seed in Vegas. Huh? What? Are you serious? BYU needs to win both this week, Portland and a big game against Gonzaga. Uh, BYU did lose to Portland on the road, so that's not a, a pushover by any means. And then uh, BYU needs St. Mary's to lose a game this week. Are, are you wearing... Oh, BYU is going to win the national championship! Oh! <laughs> Maybe exactly the West right. Coast Conference championship. You're not, you're not... men's volleyball the national championship. Okay, okay. Yeah. You're not wearing your glasses, though, right? This is legit. No. This is the real deal. This is the real deal. Dill. Dill. you got to get it right. Yeah. So um, it's a big week. Anson Winder will join us uh, break down... The big week for BYU. Talk about really fast. Um, you got to tell me about Jimmer. 10-day contract, New York Knicks, signed today. He could play tonight against the Raptors. He, the he was killing it in the D-League. Is he going to be able to carry it over? Uh, that's the question of questions. Well, Will he it, even play? Will he even play? Oh, that's true. Yeah. Bummer! So, and it's a 10-day contract, so they're not looking for him to come in and start. right? They just apparently need him to sit there. It's a 10-day contract. It's filled its roster spot. But we'll maybe give you a couple minutes to see what happens. Mm, okay. All right. Cause just so you know, they did call me about that, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. I told them I'm not just going to go sit. True. So they said, okay. You're not a sitter. We'll call Jimmer. All right, guys. Sounds like you got a great show. And thank you for the him and the Steven Tyler uh, love welcome. fest. You got it. You guys are the best. Keep- Janie's got a gun. <laughs> Didn't make the movie. Okay. Anyway, keep it up, boys. Uh, Go get ready for the big show. Go wax and get ready. Goodbye. Knock them dead. Good stuff. Always. Every day. We learn from them. And again, Ben, um, are you ready to sing something? Because we talk to them without even telling them what we're going to talk about. They both break into song. You sit. You sit here for three hours a day, and you never break into song. I'm. I'm still practicing. Yeah. I. I I want it to be a wow song well wow performance it's uh yeah let's just get back to the news here uh if you want a wow performance this woman showed up at her own funeral can you believe this story an australian woman visiting burundi was kidnapped by hitman her husband had hired to kill her and when they let her go she decided to confront her husband at her own funeral thank you thank you very much it all began when Noella Rukundo was visiting Burundi with her husband for the funeral of her stepmother. Distressed, Rukundo had gone back to her bedroom to rest when her husband, 
Balenga Kalala called and advised her to take a walk and get some fresh air. Just outside the hotel, she was confronted by a gunman who made her get in a van, and they blindfolded her, and she was taken to a building and tied to a chair. But the kidnappers decided they couldn't kill a woman and told her that they were letting her go to tell other stupid women like you what happened. Hmm. Not nice. Um, Rakundo then returned to Australia, where Kalala had told all of the friends and family that Rakundo had died in a horrible accident. When she showed up at her funeral, Kalala exclaimed, Is it my eyes? Is it a ghost? Rakundo replied with the only logical thing to say in such a situation Surprise, I'm still alive. <laughs> that is, that's a cool story. I mean, if you're going to come back and ruin your spouse and their life, you do it at their at your funeral. Is it my eyes? Is she back alive? Surprise! Hey, uh, a crazy story, too, out of Lazio region of Italy. Um, a husband is taking his wife to court this week, alleging that she does not perform enough housework. Her failure to clean has led to mistreatment of the family. As a result, he and his family have been forced to live in conditions with poor hygiene for the past two years. He argues that food, which could have been used, has gone to waste. The husband himself has even been kicked out of his own bedroom, and he feels insulted. While failure to complete housework is not a crime in Italy, negligence is, if convicted, she could spend anywhere from two to six years in jail. The 40-year-old woman goes on trial October 12th. Hey, I got an idea for you, pal. Why don't you do the dishes? Hmm? Why don't you get to work? Come on. Why didn't you cook the food? Well, I go to work every day. That's her job. Whatever. Hey, we always like to end the show on a hero story. Our hero today is Sophia Lorena from Massachusetts. She's a single mother of three. Here's the story. One cold Saturday night, Sophia Lorena won $200 from a lottery scratch ticket Looking up from her car, she noticed Glenn Williams shivering in negative 8-degree weather. Williams was holding a sign that read, Anything would help, and Lorena realized that she was able to help. She bought Williams a cup of coffee and asked him where he was going to sleep that night. When Lorena learned that he'd been sleeping the night on the freezing streets, she decided to use her $200 for good. Lorena said it was at that moment that she knew she won the 200 bucks. She drove Williams to a nearby hotel and paid for a two-night stay Lorena even set up a GoFundMe for Williams and raised more than $2,000 in less than 24 hours. She helped raise even more money to get Williams another week's stay at the hotel, buying him time when she looks for more stable housing options. Lorena's friends have also been helping by sending food and clothes to Williams. Lorena says she's overwhelmed by the generosity of so many people coming together to help a man who's a little down on his luck. So, Sophia Lorena, you are the hero of the day. A single, by the way, mother of three kids, still able and willing to look out for the other, those others that just aren't, they don't have the benefits that, uh, that some of us have. That's what makes you the hero. Really, folks, a hero, though, is every one of us, every one of us can have the ability to lift and look out for others. That's why we do this show, so that you can um, hopefully see the good in the world. Again, go find some of our past shows. Just go to iTunes. You can start downloading our podcasts or tune in or go to the BYU radio app and you can download it for Android and for um, for uh, Apple or Mac products. And again, you can listen to all of our past shows. Folks, we can't do the show without you. So 
We'll be back again tomorrow. More ideas, more tools to help you see the good and find the good in the world. Until tomorrow, folks, let's watch out for each other and uh, let's make it a great one. Until tomorrow, take care.